It's an end-of-year Emerging Cricket podcast special coming up. We look back at the year that was. Thank you for joining us again for the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick, and with me are three others today. Ooh. <laughs> First, the man known by many as Copernicus Cricket, Nick Skinner. Oh. Nick, how are you? I'm very well, Bez. Um, just been <laughs> hanging out. Classic gaff. just to start off. Oh. Um, just been hanging out, eating a lot of Christmas food, <laughs> watching the test match. Life is good at this time of year. Were you on I mute was. then? Um, this is a recurring problem. Still on, on <laughs> holiday mode. Yeah, wishing all the best over the holiday period, uh, whether it's Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, etc. cetera. Uh, someone else celebrating Christmas. Tim Cutler. Tim, how are you? I'm good, Bez. Um, without wanting to go too far into movie reviews, I do hope this holiday special is better than Star Wars <laughs> from the, uh, the <laughs> mid to late 70s and also better than its, nice. well, flaming paper bag at someone's door full of excrement of a last movie that I saw in the last Don't couple of weeks. But um, what, we agree? Yeah, I, I thought it was a mess. Yeah, it was. It, it was the how to please as many fans as possible while fitting in as many J.J. Abrahams, or a- Abrams, sorry, uh, lens flares in two hours. So if you like Star Wars, probably don't go watch it. But um, no, I'm, I'm good, Bez. Been backwards and forwards uh, from Brisbane down to the north coast of New South Wales. Eight hour drive each way down for cri- Christmas to uh, surprise the old man who was coming up there for, uh, for that time. But uh, now back heavier and uh, ready to start a healthier <laughs> 2020. Yes, uh, likewise with me. Uh, I don't really have a horse in the race in the Star Wars debate. I haven't seen it yet. Um, But I have heard, yes, polarizing reviews from people. I think more towards your side, guys. Uh, But I have heard a few people who really enjoyed it. So not really sure where to go on that one. But I won't be racing out of my house to go see it. Our special guest today, uh, one of our EC's own, Tasneem Samakhan. Tasneem, first of all, how are you? And uh, how are you enjoying New Zealand at the moment? You've uh, spent quite a bit of time there. I have. I've spent, what, the last two months in New Zealand. Um, it's cool. It's. I was very excited about my very Kiwi Christmas, which was fascinating. It's so low-key down under, guys. You guys are not like English people or Americans, where we're just incredibly over the top about everything. People... <laughs> People don't, like, break the bank at Christmas. It's really bizarre. I don't understand this culture. What is... Where's the consumerism, you know? Um, but, yeah, no, it's been it's been great. I've, I've enjoyed a little little Christmas, a little Hanukkah uh, in New Zealand and, and not really enjoyed um, New Zealand's very underwhelming cricket summer so far. Don't tell the Kiwis, but, but boring series against England and just a big old mess against Australia. Hopefully the India series will be better for me. Yeah, I was definitely hoping for a stronger opposition here in Australia. Uh, the second best team in the world, according to the ITC rankings, which Allegedly, we all know, yeah. aren't a perfect barometer of, of how things are going. But yeah, it has been thoroughly disappointing. I've I've been sat down on the couch several times over the summer wanting Kane Williamson to, to bat all day. And unfortunately, I haven't really seen that materialise. Uh, yeah, disappointing on that front, but... From an emerging cricket point of view, it's been a bumpy year both on and off the field. Uh, A lot of good on the field, uh, not so much off the field. Uh, We're going to try and run through 
everything today from January to December of 2019. We'll also hear from some other EC contributors around the world giving their opinions and their takes of the year that was. And at the end, we might even throw in some predictions for 2020. Let's start with the first quarter of the year from January to March. And we saw uh, the men's and women's East Asia Pacific T20 qualifiers that were dominated by Papua New Guinea. Uh, before we do move on to some more world events, of course, the, the the Southern Hemisphere is where the sport sort of dominates for cricket with, with the weather being too cold in the, in the northern parts. But we saw PNG dominate uh, both of those tournaments in qualifying for their respective World Cup qualifiers. We'll get to them a little bit later on. But Tim, we've just seen a, a continued domination of, of PNG at this level of, of the game uh, in the T20 format and, and in other formats as well. Yeah, it comes on a off the back of a number of years where they've been the, the leading contributor to participation numbers um, with their school's programs. They received another, was it $400,000 over the course of the last year and a bit to, to help build them another 42 wickets. It was just unfortunate, I guess, and I know we're going to get onto the uh, the global qualifier uh, for the women later on as we work through the year, but it was just unfortunate they weren't able to, to get that next step um, into the the World Cup from a 2020 point of view, but uh, yeah, as we saw more events being held, well, at least with the with international status being held on the synthetic turf wickets, to see uh, more and more games in the Pacific is great. But um, yeah, I think it's only looking up really for the, the women's game in 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 PNG. There's some big strong hitters in the team. It's just a matter of building a bit of finesse now. Yeah, and I, I was very impressed with, um, I know Samoa didn't qualify, but Regina Lilly, their captain, who was only dismissed once, and unfortunately that was on the final day against PNG, and, and that um, allowed the Papuans to uh, to qualify because after Regina was out, there, there wasn't a whole lot of batting. But um, it, it's good that they've got some competition, at least in the women's game, because on the men's side of things, PNG really are pulling out so far ahead that, that there's basically no one else that, that's able to compete with them at the moment. So it, it was just great to see the um, women's game getting more press coverage uh, through the, the universal status. And, and that's something that, uh, again, we'll, we'll see throughout the rest of the year as, as we go through it. Yeah, well, Samoa got their revenge uh, a little bit later in the year. And we will we'll discuss that uh, from the women's point of view. But for P&G's men... Uh, it was a good way to start the year for them in a, in a format that they are really strong in. It's the format that they do focus on uh, as they did build into 2019. Um, if we do move uh, a little bit further on in the year, we, we do see them playing in, in World Cricket League 2, which I will discuss in a second. Uh, one more thing to kind of round out the first quarter of the year. Uh, Oman also hosted a quadrangular series, uh, which was won by Scotland. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, cricket in this point of the year to go on with. That tournament included Ireland, the Netherlands, uh, of course, hosts Oman and the winners in Scotland. But we'll quickly jump into the next uh, part of the year. Just quickly before we move on, I think it's, as, as I said, PNG heavily dominated on the men's side, but uh, the Philippines recorded their first ever T20 international win uh, as they... Managed to get one over Vanuatu in in the regional finals. Yeah, it's worth noting too, and it's actually a good way to to, to move the show along. Is that uh, plenty of countries were given T Twenty? Uh, sorry, well, every every member on the men's side were given T Twenty international status. The women's side of things had status back last year, of course, and yeah, that means that a lot of uh, of these countries did get their first wins in international cricket, which is good to see and good to 
have their name etched in the history books. Uh, let's look into April and June, and we saw Ireland play England in a test match at Lords, and Ireland gave England a scare, it must be said, uh, although England just uh, got past them in the end. We also saw T20 World Cup qualifiers in Africa. Uh, we saw World Cricket League 2 in Namibia, which we were, well, we were really excited to be Therefore, we saw the Kwabuka T20 tournament, uh, as well as the inaugural European Cricket League. Plenty to, to discuss here, guys, uh, without going too much into the Ireland-England test match, because we, we sort of know how that all went down. Perhaps looking at maybe the African qualifying sides of things in the, in the T20s, we saw with Zimbabwe stepping aside, um, it meant that there were a few more teams that could shine there. We saw Nigeria come through and, and provide... Uh, some entertainment. Uh, we also saw Namibia compete at the Women's T20 World Cup qualifier with Zimbabwe gone. But Tim, it's good to see a, a few teams coming out of Africa with a bit more quality and, and hopefully a pushing quality in that area. Yes, it was an interesting pathway uh, that led to, well, I guess in the end, as he's mentioned, Nigeria coming through in third place on the back of Zimbabwe being being suspended but again it was good to see those extended pathways well I guess the the newly extended they you know it's not the most teams that have ever been qualifying for a T20 World Cup but uh, Botswana getting up over Namibia in their hosted uh, sub-regional was it was good to see the emergence of perhaps another uh, African nation whilst unlucky with the weather in the final qualifiers and, and Uganda not getting through the qualifiers are good to see them come back later in the year um, I guess that the sad part again it continues being being Kenya's performance albeit that they did get through the qualifiers in, in men's to the global event uh, the global qualifier they were uh, probably well on field reflected their off field troubles where they were consistently inconsistent um, but as you said on the women's side Zimbabwe kind of having that having them uh, snipped off the top although they got through undefeated in their qualifiers to see Namibia get through to that global qualifier in Scotland uh, good to see the energy in Namibia's women's cricket continue to grow both online both with the social media good to see that they're pushing hard there but also the enthusiasm they brought to Scotland. A lot of young talent coming through there, which is is, is great to see. But yeah, look, I think it will be a, a theme running through everything we say uh, today is about the having international status across all T20s to see how much cricket is being spoken about. You know, we may have some of the lowest scores recorded, but the fact that people are talking about these countries um, is, is great to see. And I think that was reflected in, in Africa's, well, quarter two, but entire year that was. Yeah, obviously Zimbabwe's um, exclusion from the qualifiers was was a sad story for for everybody involved, and I think the cricket world at large. Um, and it shouldn't take the disqualification of another side for us to look at other teams. But just getting to see Nigeria on the world stage um, with Namibia and Kenya, you know, countries that we've seen um, more traditionally in the cricketing sphere, was fantastic. They they reached their first T twenty qualifier later on in the year, and and I think that despite having low scoring matches or matches that seem to be one you know more one-sided uh, people get a lot of 
emotions over one-sided matches and low-scoring matches, but, I mean, aren't we right now watching the world's most boring test match where we all know exactly what's going to happen between Australia and, and New Zealand? You're not really going to have the same arguments thrown out there that New Zealand should be stripped of test status because they're unable to compete away from home or unable to compete with the big boys, etc., etc. Cricket is a game that takes some time and takes developmental pathways. And one of the first steps on that ladder of developmental pathways is actually playing the game. So I think Cutler, you're absolutely spot on. Just um, having a little bit more exposure to the world stage, playing with with other countries that have been playing a lot longer than you. So it's it's been fantastic to see um, a couple more African nations get to that stage. Yeah, and, and not just more African nations, but um, also seeing women's cricket being brought into the spotlight um and and that's uh, i guess a good thing across all cricket that, that we've seen um but especially in africa there's so much uh depth being formed you know you talked about namibia and zimbabwe of course who unfortunately couldn't compete in the qualifier but uh there was also the victoria tri-series early, uh, around this time of year which uh, was a, a really good series and, and we saw some great cricket there it was a tri-series between zimbabwe Uganda and Kenya, and um, Uganda had some some good talent coming through as well as the Zimbabweans who dominated the the runs and wickets tally. So it was a shame, I guess, that that Zimbabwe uh, weren't able to uh, move forward into that qualifier, and we didn't get to see them uh, perform on the world stage. But yeah, it was good to uh, I guess witness the, these new teams emerging, and and this was around the time that we saw the Quibuka tournament, the uh, notorious, for some people, debut of Mali in international women's cricket. And we, we talked a lot about it at the time on the podcast, but it, it's worth, I guess, mentioning the, the point again that you know this was the first time they've played cricket. And this was a tournament uh, hosted by Rwanda as a commemorative event uh, for the 25th anniversary of the, the Rwandan genocide. And they've put a lot of emphasis on using sport to, to bring people together. And this was the sort of thing that, um, you know, this is what cricket's all about. This is what sport's all about. And this is one of the great things about the game is its capacity to heal wounds and to bring people together. And, you know, you look at Rwanda, the hosts, and pardon me, going back a few years, um, Rwanda played in a, a women's tournament uh, featuring Uganda and Kenya. This is going back to uh, 2008. So um, over 10 years ago, Rwanda were absolutely pummeled in all of their matches. And talking to the Malian team uh, about their performance in the Kwibuka tournament, they, they mentioned that after they were hammered by Rwanda, Rwanda actually sort of took them to, to one side and said, well, look, you know, we got we got absolutely pummeled in our first game. And, and, you know, you look at Rwanda's level of cricket now, especially in the women's game, but also the men's game, they've, they've really moved forward. And um, I think the fact that Mali has been invited to this tournament is a great for cricket in the region and, and also for relations in the region. You know, you, cricket is... Um, often limited to, to Commonwealth countries. And you know, the fact that the game is uh, growing naturally and, and organically through traditionally Francophone non-Commonwealth countries, uh, is I think it's, it's fantastic. And yeah, Mali's team is not very good and they got absolutely thrashed. But that, that's not really what this is about. <laughs> you know, it's about the stories of, of how Rwanda, after the game that they played... They, they stayed back after lunch and, and coached them for the rest of the day. And these sorts of links between players and countries, is, is that's what the game's all about. And the fact that people chose to focus on, well, the numbers and, oh, I call upon the ICC to strip these records from them, that sort of nonsense, it completely missed the point of why they were playing in the first place. And, you know, do, do play 
purely for the stats or, or do you play for a, a bigger reason? And I would definitely argue you play for a much bigger reason than numbers in a book. I mean, obviously I agree with Nick. Those narratives are really important and, and sport has a power that's greater than looking at your average for the season. Obviously, but it's also about exposure. The more the game is exposed in general, the more other people will see it and think, hey, maybe I could do that. Um, we either believe in the sport or we don't. You know, the believing in the sport for elitism's sake is really, really, really boring. It's just not a personality trait. And it's just seeming to become more and more that. And it's coming from the same <laughs> kinds of people all the time. I'm so bored of it. Honestly, the next person that expresses that opinion, like... They should, I don't know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's really Taz frustrating. Turn off it's, now. Yeah, yeah, Taz is coming for you. It's it's really boring to see because we can <clears> all pull out the stats where every team has capitulated for, for a ridiculous <laughs> score and everybody's been in that situation. We're talking about countries that are playing developmentally for the first time. You either want to see the sport played or you just want to see the ashes again and again and again and again. That's it. So it's it's. I absolutely agree with Nick. It's about the narratives, but it's also about the exposure and the development of the sport. And and like Nick said, you're gonna get you're gonna get coaching. You're gonna get um um across country like an exchange of ideas, an exchange of of just the game and the love for the game. And that's exactly we've all seen that in associate cricket. We've seen people who love the game as if they were from test playing nations or more than people from test playing nations. And that's what it's about. It's about the love of the sport and growing it. Well, I think it's worth giving a special mention to the, the Mali skipper, Yuma Sangare, who's, um, she's a remarkable woman by all accounts. And, and she has essentially devoted her life to cricket in, in Mali. And she just learned about the game because, um, you know, someone came, came through to her university and gave a demonstration of the sport and she just fell in love with the game. And these, these are the stories that we want to celebrate. And, you know, Mali, they're building their own cricket equipment because it's too expensive to import it. So they've, they've got some wood and timber and they're building bats and stumps. And, and this is the level of, of passion that the, the Malian cricket scene has. And to, to sort of turn your nose up at that, it, it just it, it's bewildering to me. Well, just to finalise on the point, uh, the first organised cricket in Mali was in 2002. And when you put that into context in comparison to when some of these big full member nations began their cricket, teams were bowled out for scores of 6 to 10, you know, in the infancy of yeah. their cricket as well. So it's it's not as if this is a new thing. It's just happening in a different Phenomenal. time period when yeah. someone else is, is picking up the sport a little bit later. Uh, it is definitely food for thought and... Hopefully in 2020, we, we don't see as much of that moronic old school way of thinking in, in regards to stats because, you know, no other sport has the same problem as us in in regards to the this faux sanctity of statistics and record keeping. It, it does my head in and that's, you know, coming from someone who works in stats. Just to, to go through uh, some of the other stuff in April and June and without being too self-indulgent here, boys. World Cricket League 2 was on in, in this part of the year. Uh, we saw some incredible cricket. We saw four countries gain one-day international status. Um, some gripping games of cricket that we are accustomed to seeing at this level of the game. We saw Barramundi, the Barramundi Miracle uh, PNG scrape through on the final day, albeit with a few other results going their way. Uh, we saw Namibia at home win that tournament. Uh, JJ Smith emerge as, as one of the better players in the associate game. Uh, so many highlights to think about there, both on and off the field, and, and quite an enjoyable time. But, Tim, you have to say that this tournament was great, and it led into the new Cricket World Cup League 2 setup, and we see a few more one-day internationals. The, these teams get 36 one-day internationals over the next three years. 
Yeah, I think you summarised that pretty well. It was a amazing sort of ten days of action and just showing how the the uh, the leading associate cricket sides have, have have changed. Looking that Oman and the USA had come through from World Cricket League Division Three, being played in November uh, twenty eighteen, to then come through and um, be two of the four sides that went on to League Two. Just shows how. World cricket can uh, can change with the continued slide, or maybe you could say recalibration of, of Hong Kong going from one of the leading fifty-over teams to now dropping back to the Challenge League. It was sad for all followers of the game there, and to see the various issues that they've had. Um, but yeah, the last World Cricket League tournament, well, at least branded as a World Cricket League tournament, we have a Challenge League that's more or less played as three World Cricket League events just with no promotional relegation directly from it yeah sort of to see the change from 50 over cricket being the format that the ICC is using as its um, main growth or format where everything is based off to really seeing probably the last year where that's the case where there was a world cricket league up and down but now we've got uh, a new format which I know we'll talk about more later on but uh, yeah yeah, that last day, you know, World Cricket League Division 2 just seems to be, well, that's the norm now. It all comes down to the last day or some amazing performances. We saw that from Nepal in 2018. And in April 2019, as you said, the Barramundi Miracle, we're going into that last day, PNG was, well, I think we even, even called it on the uh, on the Namibia versus Hong Kong stream that was going on over at uh, uh, Affy's Park, was uh, they, they were gone. And then all of a sudden they come back to absolutely demolish Oman and take that crucial fourth spot. And we talked about the dominance of PNG and the women's and men's qualifying for the T20, but they just scraped in from a 50-over point of view. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't at the uh, the Hong Kong game, the astonishing um, JP Kotsa century that Namibia put up against them, but um, I, I was watching Canada. Well, they won against the US, and, and that was good, but it they, they ended up falling two runs short or one run short on net run rate behind PNG. And, you know, you, we saw as, as the match was going on, um, the message got relayed that, you know, Papua New Guinea had flogged Oman, and um, instead of just needing to win... Canada needed to win big, and and we saw J- David Jacobs start changing his field, and well, very interesting decision. He gave up the wicket-keeping gloves and moved himself onto short cover region to really try and put the pressure on the um, uh, American batsmen, and and it worked, and and there was a collapse, and the Americans looked like they were really heading to a massive defeat, but then in, you know in the last over. They managed to knock Canada out, which the amount of cheering that we saw from the Americans in terms of um, how happy they were about knocking Canada out seemed disproportionate. But then um, you look at how well Canada performed in the Challenge League uh, later on in the year, and perhaps it was uh, worth celebrating the fact that they won't, wouldn't necessarily be coming up against Canada in the in the ODI League too. Yeah, it was a strange moment, and... and being on comms at that point, I didn't really know what to say. And Lenny, Lenny's there trying to ask me questions and respond. And, and to be honest, I didn't really know how to feel. But, you know, from a US point of view, you, you don't really want to give Canada a free pass either. Uh, so I can kind of see where they were coming from. It was a lesser of two evils in a way. And to have PNG enter that, that competition. And you look at the, that table now and, and PNG do find themselves north for eight. There might have been a strategic element there for 
for the USA, thinking that Canada might have been a bit more of a threat, as we've seen in the Challenge League, Canada look a class above. But in saying that, you know, from an American point of view, if you're if you're batting, you don't really want to just kick your bails over and, and roll over and just say, here you go, Canada, you can have the other spot because, you know, that's not really what competing is about. And I do remember several people having different opinions on it. And to be honest, it's one of those things where it, it's such a rarity in sport that something like that happens. That not everyone knows how to how to deal with it. And even being in, in the game and being in the, in the heat of battle, you know, I've I, got no idea how you know several of those players would have felt in regards to it I do remember a few of the Canadian players being up in arms which you know in some ways I, I agree with but to go to some other moments in, in World Cricket League 2 and being there that day that you know Namibia put up that mammoth total against Hong Kong and watching JP Kotzer almost hitting sixes at will I've never really seen anything like that uh, in the emerging game, although we have seen JP Kotzer, you know, on streams at other points of the year do a very similar thing, you know, just bombing sixes everywhere and hitting. Uh, I think he made a debut T20 International 100 because it was their first T20 in, recognized T20 International a little bit later on and he made a big 100 against Botswana. But yeah, that innings was something to behold and he was complimented by, uh, by Stephen Bard and we saw JJ Smith uh, with another performance in that game that warranted his player of the tournament. Uh, credentials, and we saw him move on into some franchise cricket a little bit later on in the year in Canada. Uh, but yeah, that was a magnificent tournament and was a, a pleasure to be a part of that. Some other stuff that was going on uh, in that April and June period. Nick, you we saw the, the Central American Championships go down there. And I might ask you about this first because I do know that you're in, in contact with, with Craig White a lot. But we have seen the emergence of some powers in, in Central American cricket, and they're actually changing their tournament now to an uh, annual tournament from next year onwards, uh, if my memory serves me correctly. But it's it's good to see that region uh, growing from a from a cricketing perspective. Yeah, Craig was saying it's um uh, <laughs> it was a very stressful time for him as, as secretary at Mexican Cricket, just trying to organise everything, but seemed to, to go off without a hitch, and it, it was good to see the MCC uh, continuing their... I guess commitment to to helping spread the game and sending a team over for the for the men's tournament where they uh, lost in the final to Belize. Uh, also worth mentioning the Mexican women who won the women's tournament and um, basically they they dominated against uh, Costa Rica and the, the Mexican women are, are a great story and they're also one of these teams that's um, really coming along in leaps and bounds and and um, I guess it, it's sort of a, a an interesting point to to consider but I think the women's game is one area that cricket actually is doing quite well in terms of development and you know there's there's a lot to i guess complain about in terms of um cricket's you know efforts to to globalize the game but uh women's cricket is uh, a great emerging market and and it's one that i think cricket would be very wise to uh to invest heavily in because as as a market and as as a vehicle for growing the game i think cricket has a lot more potential in the women's side of things because perhaps uh, it's a less mature market so there's a lot more yeah a lot more fertile room for growth and we'll hear from uh, Craig White as he gives his take on 2019 a little bit later on uh, the last topic of conversation in this part of the year was the inaugural European Cricket League uh, we've seen quite a lot of coverage on emerging cricket in regards to the league. We've spoken to Daniel Weston once or twice. We'll be hearing from him again very soon in regards to 2020. We saw the emergence of Pavel Florin. Uh, everyone knows who Pavel Florin is now. Uh, after this tournament, we saw VOC Rotterdam's favourites go through relatively unscathed to win that tournament. 
Uh, we saw a team in SG Findorf from Germany end up as runners-up, but not qualify for next year's tournament. We'll see a 16-team tournament next year, but to look back retrospectively at the 2019 tournament, we saw a really slick production. Uh, we saw a very professional organization run the tournament. Uh, definitely a few lessons for a few of the international teams and the international board to consider when looking at uh, providing coverage for, for cricket like this, Tim. It was a highlight of the year for me just watching cricket being played in Spain, uh, you know, on the on the coast there in La Manga. It was a great tournament. It was enjoyed by, by many uh, who tuned in in over 120 countries and definitely something to build on for Daniel Wesson and his team next year. Yes, and we'll talk about it more broadly. I think we talk about the topic of, of franchise versus international cricket, but I thought this was really an example of... Uh, someone getting it right um, um, into their strategy and trying to build from a club up and uh, the bottom up where a lot of other tournaments look at sort of a top-down approach of start with the stars and then everything else will take care of itself where Daniel Weston's strategy is the exact opposite is to, to build local heroes um, within established clubs um, using the, the Champions League model that has worked so well in football and using some of the guys that actually um, started that tournament um, on his board, including uh, FIFA and uh, FIBA um, international experienced executives on the board too. I, and as you said, with the slick production, uh, Pavel Florin, I think when we all saw it live, we, we may have slightly twisted in our chairs thinking which way is this going to be taken um, and it took your employer Fox Sports to put up a, a tweet or despite them broadcasting it saying the European Cricket League everyone with a little sarcastic emoji and to see that the response of people basically tearing that down saying why are you making fun of someone who's Romanian born loves the game and trying to grow the sport uh, it, it couldn't have turned out better I think if, if apart from perhaps um I'm I'm not sure MS Doney or Coley turning up to play. If if da Daniel Weston could have, um, in his wildest dreams, imagined that the best reply um, or response to the event, it would have been this. And the fact that Pavel Florin has been in Australia, I know he's back in Romania now, uh, back in Transylvania of all places, um, back uh, to he was in Australia and went from sort of capital city to capital city and was basically on free-to-air news bites wherever he went just shows the exposure um, or the potential of uh, the ECL. And I just hope that we move from novelty value and it's not, I don't want to call Pavel by any stretch and I'm going to be talking to him soon to be hopefully having an emerging cricket sticker on his bat, but moving from the novelty of someone in, in, in Romania playing cricket to actually watching the skill set um, improve amongst teams from Romania and throughout Europe. But uh, it, you know, we look at this in comparison to the likes of the Euro T20 Slam that never got off the ground uh, and other T20 leagues. It just shows that someone that's looking at it differently uh, and has a, a real strategic approach where it can be successful. So Cutler's just going to be ecstatic because I'm going to have one of those rare moments where I say that I agree with him in, in totality, basically. But you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, Dan Weston did something remarkable that he took vision and he actually actualized it. We have so many big talkers in the game. We have so many um, dreams of taking the game to greater heights, to more places, to broader audiences. But I think that it was done very organically and that that bottom-up version 
of things just works a lot better because it's about long-term growth and reigniting passion or, or igniting passion in players and, and fans who may not have had the same exposures um, that people from Test Playing Nations have had. So in addition to, to the, the, you know, just like saying how good the ECL itself was and um, and Weston's vision. I think the Pavel Florin story is fascinating. It's fascinating that Fox chose to take the piss and it's really fascinating how people responded to it. Um, it, it actually is quite heartening to see the response being so frustrated by by that perspective of haha is this really cricket can this guy really play etc etc but I'm glad you mentioned the novelty factor because personally I find a lot of the traditional cricket world's um retweet obsession with Pavel Florin and and that story in general ridiculous ridiculous in the sense of they are people who don't support associate cricket they're the the same people that take the piss out of associate cricket they're the same people who talk about how associate cricket stats should be wiped from from looking at statistics the rest of the time um but you know pavel florin is retweetable so i hope that some of the condescension and novelty value that's involved in in championing pavel florin which i think some of it does come from the fact that they find it cutesy um, I hope that that's going to wear out and we're going to start looking at the tournament holistically and seriously and that we're all going to start sharing or, or contributing ways to grow the game and grow the ECL and, and other ventures that are similar to it. So so I hope it moves beyond the retweetability of it. Um, I, you know, I know people who where I know their views on the associate game. Let's ignore the associate game. I know their views on Afghanistan and Ireland, who who are test-playing nations. And um, they love hitting that retweet button about Pavel Florin, though. So, you know, I'm not... I just don't like hypocrisy. And I think there's a lot of hypocrisy around with with Pavel and, and his Twitter popularity. And it masks some of the very serious successes that the ECL has had. Just in terms of broadcasting, we we talk about how the associate game is not broadcast and put out to, to consumers, to fans worldwide in a way that it should be. Well, the European Quick Cricket Network found a way. So that's fantastic. That's great. And I hope that that it's going to show people a pathway for a new model. Um, that would be amazing. But I, d I do think it's a phenomenal base, and I think that it's going to grow strength to strength. And 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the line, I think it's going to be something very different. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point you raise about the uh, the response to Pavel Florin. And it's, I guess it's always a fine line with these sorts of cult heroes as, as whether they're you know taking the piss or, or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think the... The fact that people are there is a guy who is from Romania and he loves cricket and that that's worth celebrating and and you're right there is a level of novelty value I guess what I would hope would happen and and this echoes your thoughts on the matter is that people look beyond the novelty value because you know you think back to county cricket in the in the 70s when um, Ole Mortensen was playing and and the fans would come in with the the Viking helmets, and there's always been a, a willingness for cricket to accept people from non-traditional backgrounds as 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 a novelty value. You know, there's oh, there's this one Danish guy, and and he's it's funny, but or you know, yeah, look at look at Pavel's hand grenades, isn't that amusing? But to really embrace growing cricket would would be, um, I guess, the next step. And bringing it back to the ECL and um, the European Cricket Network project that, that Dan Weston's running I think the fact that the production was so good and and it was a seriously filmed uh, project and and it looked slick um, that I think 
is a massive tick in, in terms of bridging that gap because you know you, you watch there's a lot of high quality cricket going on in the associate world but most of it's streamed on you know dodgy one camera no sound that you're just trying to figure out what's going on and i think if that level of quality were applied to the level of quality that we see in the cricket and we'll get to this with the the world cup qualifier i think it would be um there would be a much better response in terms of people taking the game seriously yeah to finally wrap up everything you guys have have said there and it's very well put there was the emergence of of other players not necessarily florin but we saw a hundred to ahmed nabi off something like 28 balls uh representing drur we saw sivakumar periel will make a bit of a name uh, for himself for cluj as well he's a romanian national team player so it was good to see the emergence and, and a few of these players we had seen on scorecards at qualifiers and stuff like that before, but we hadn't really had a chance to, to actually watch them play any cricket. Um, so from from my perspective, it was beneficial to us um, having, you know, such a slick broadcast. And that's, you know, this is coming from people who are here trying to broadcast about the emerging game and, and informing other people. In a way, it, it gave us a very, very good understanding of a few more of these players around um, to you know, to think that you know this project with Western started with seventeen GoPros in a German gym and um, watching, you know, guys play around and and the immigrant population of Germany not realizing just how many people actually played cricket in Germany to able to bring that all together, albeit through the power of social media and, and streaming matches and and seeing that in in country to country now uh, only means it's, it's going to get better. And Western made it very clear that the first year for him. Even he wasn't really sure how it was going to pan out, but this is more for the next 20 years. This is a very much a long-term project from from his perspective and from you know his team of Thomas Clues and, and Frank Leanders and, and Roger Finer as well. So there's a lot of people in very or previously from very high up places, you know, trying to come up with great ideas for this tournament, and it's coming to fruition. And yeah, it's very important to acknowledge that this is a, a bottom-down up method rather than a top-down to the bottom as, as Tim you said because instilling you know opportunity in, in a lot of these clubs around the country is inspirational for players to not only play cricket but to even come back you know there, there's people from countries immigrating to Europe who you know perhaps just want to play cricket again and all of a sudden you know there's an opportunity to, to play it on a, on a European stage and I think that European cricket as a whole is is a potential hotbed that we might see uh, really build in the next 20 years. You know, we saw in the qualifier for the T20 World Cup, I think every single team in that qualifier won a game. You know, all 18 teams won at least one match in that qualifier. So it shows there is quality across the board and hopefully in 2020 we see uh, a 16-team tournament do the same. Let's move on to July and September. Uh, we did briefly talk about the Zimbabwe suspension before, but uh, it is definitely worth bringing up again as, as you know, as an informant, Nick, and and Tasneem, you you guys uh, saw a lot of this go down. And, and Taz, I know that you speak to a lot of the Zimbabwean players in regards to this, but it's a good lesson for everyone involved. Of course, they were suspended and eventually reinstated. But Nick, I'll start with you. It was a pretty sour sour note to start this period of the year, and and it you know wasn't really a good look for Zimbabwe or African cricket for that matter. Yeah, we talked about the I guess the good side earlier in in the opportunities it afforded to Nigeria, which I think is fantastic, but. Yeah, extremely disappointing that this happened, but I guess the fact that the suspension happened at this point was perhaps 
the worst part, you know, the, the fact that the suspension happened when a new administration came in and, and was looking to clear up the corruption of the previous administration. And, you know, I mean, Zimbabwean politics is um, a Byzantine endeavour to, to get your head around anyway. So I'm sure there was a lot of um, ulterior motives from the new administration as well. But the, the, the fact that the, the ICC has not in any way stepped in or, or even slowed the flow of money from the ICC into the coffers of the previous administration, which was, let's not forget, there was huge amounts of political interference from the Mugabe regime into the the, previ- the cricket uh, administration. But the ICC turned a blind eye to that. And, and now that the, the new administration in Zimbabwe was, was looking to clear out the old guard, that's what upset the ICC. So it seemed like it was very much a case of... Um, having friends in high places and, and that's that's why the ICC stepped in rather than any uh, any genuine interest in the game because you, know, you look at the chaos that's been afflicting Zimbabwean cricket for the last decade plus, you know, you've got stuff like players, you know, Tatenda Taibu's come on record and said that he was, uh, he and his family were, were pursued by government operatives uh, looking to intimidate him and you know, that's the sort of government interference that was happening but the ICC did nothing and yet now government interference, so-called, uh, in terms of trying to get an audit of their books. And that's that's a step too far for the ICC, I, I think. Yeah, so th- this whole yeah, situation is just a, a long-running, festering wound on, on international cricket. And I, I don't know what the solution is because, you know, you look at all the all the things that have happened in Zimbabwean cricket and, uh, you know, we could spend a podcast or you know, a whole series of podcasts talking about that. And... What what has really fundamentally changed after this suspension and and reinstatement? Really, nothing. There's there's been no administrative restructure. Really, there's been no, I guess, pressure from the ICC to to clean up their act. There basically has been no change in terms of the actual administration. So, will will anything really improve in Zimbabwe? I'm really not convinced, and I think they need a, a massive clean out. And sadly, that doesn't look like happening. So those are excellent points about the Zimbabwe situation. And I think it's been frustrating for, for all of us to watch it, whether you're involved in Zimbabwe cricket or you're watching it from afar. Um, there's definitely been a little bit of hypocrisy with the way that it's been handled. We know that Zimbabwe is far from the only board that has involvement from the political side of things in the cricket. And corruption corruption exists in in. I would say all boards to some extent, some more than others. Zimbabwe is far from the only one and the situation with Zimbabwe has chopped and changed throughout. What I find really frustrating is is not just the, the accusations of financial irregularities um, and the way that the the board ha- and, and the interim board have handled things, but the way that the ICC has handled it as well. Um, of course, uh, lifting the suspension right before the qualifiers, which meant that Zimbabwe have basically been been ousted from any kind of meaningful international cricket for, for the next couple of years in that way. It's good to see them back playing cricket now, um, but it's hard to know how long that's going to last and in what measure that's going to last for, especially when you see outgoing captains quickly being given positions um, on the board. So I think it's a really frustrating situation to, to watch. It's not good for the health of the game. Um, the mismanagement of the ICC loan is, is not the only part that's concerning. It's just about how we're managing test-playing nations and emerging cricket nations and what we what we expect or, or what our 
position is on actually growing the game. I think that you could have taken over administration from Zimbabwe and prevented them from being barred from playing internationally, um, particularly when America and Nepal were treated quite different to how Zimbabwe was treated. So it's been a really, really, really frustrating thing to watch. And there's been a lot of inconsistencies in the ICC's approach. Um, and I think there's definitely a bad precedent that's that's been set up with America and, and Nepal. But if you have set up that precedent of allowing teams to play whilst they're suspended, then it's got to continue for, for other nations as well. Why a different, you know, treatment for, for America and Nepal? versus Zimbabwe, a, a nation that has a great cricketing history and a lot of political problems within the country that extend to far more than just their sports administration. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, good way to, to wrap up that discussion point. There, there was some great work done in the aftermath of that suspension. I know that Liam Brickhill did some great work, um, which was good reading in regards to that as well. But yeah, look, uh, and Taz, you, you know a lot of people, you know, connected with the Zimbabwean side and, and you told me a, a range of different stories about their experiences and it's just, you know, this is you know, ended international careers basically. Um, and, and, you know, they're the, they're the people that, you know, we look at, at Nepal suspension and that was thankfully lifted eventually, but Nepal were always allowed to play international cricket. You know, these guys, these players were left as the biggest victims in all of this when they hadn't really you know, done anything wrong. It was uh, an administrative problem um, with people in, you know, within the board and within Zimbabwean cricket. You know, the players were wrongfully punished for, for something that they really didn't do in that situation. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's left a, a pretty black mark on the game, which is is not great to see. Um, some other issues that have come up from an administrative standpoint actually came in the Canadian Global T20. There were pay issues there. And Taz, you were there in, in Canada while that was going down. Uh, not a great situation for, for all involved either. We also heard from Carl Kurtzer and, and Anshi Rathwell. They were over there, uh, their experiences. But Taz, you know, the, the Canadian Global T20, it has potential, but it just looks as if there's, you know, there's not enough money to, to go around and make that a viable uh, tournament structure. It's a really fascinating one because I'm not sure if the issue is that there's not enough money. I think it's it's another type of mismanagement, to be honest. I have very fascinating and mixed feelings about the GT20 because like you said, I think there's a lot of potential. It was better this year for associates. We had more associate um, players. They had better pay than in the first year. They had more match time. And we saw some insane performances from, from Munzi, from Kutzer, from Unshi, who was just absolutely phenomenal, from um, Shaman Unver as well. They're not the only guys, Kyle Phillips. Um, it was it was a better stage for them the second time round than the first year. So I definitely think that there's potential. I do not think that that potential filters down to to the Canadian board. Um, and then there's there's all this financial problems that that go along with it. We know that uh, it's the same company that administers the GT20 Canada or, or runs it, owns it, whatever you want to use, and the cancelled Euro T20 Slam, which was um. I mean, we knew those of us who were at the GT20 knew that the Euroslam was going to be cancelled, um, or at least were about 70% sure. And then the official cancellation wasn't announced until, what, like less than a week to go before the Euroslam itself? So it, it, the way that it's been handled is pretty frustrating as well. I think the money is absolutely there. I think it's some of it's about liquidity and some of it is about 
where our priorities lie in distributing the money as well. I would find it very hard to believe that um, Yuvraj Singh was not paid his his presumably glorious uh, wage for the GT20 beforehand, or at least enough of it for him to actually turn up in Canada. Um, but that's just not true for for players who are not Yuvraj Singh or Chris Gale or Shahid Afridi. And, and we saw that we saw a little bit of a union moment, which allows me to talk about how I think that, that cricket players internationally need an international union, not just for cancellations like the Euroslam, which, I mean, we all know how, what that did to associate players. It's not the same as, um, as some of the other guys suffered because they've given up jobs. They've, they've um, you know, like released themselves from their county contracts early. They've maybe even skipped fixtures for their home side, their, their international side. And, and they're putting a lot of stock and a lot of, um, a lot of leverage into, into something like the Euroslam. The Euroslam could have been phenomenal for, for the three boards involved and, and the domestic players involved from, from those three emerging boards. But that's just not what happened. It's become a little bit of a, a running joke in the cricket world. Um, and, and I think that that is a knock-on effect from the financial mismanagement of the GT20 itself. Um, but it was nice to see players band together and refuse to take the field until they were all paid. Because I know for a fact, and, and, and I'm sure everybody could understand that that wouldn't have been true for all the players involved. For some of those guys, they were paid, but they still stood with their teammates and said, nope, not until um, not until everybody gets their money, or at least parts of their money. So it's a fascinating one because, you know, it might be one of those bo- um, it might be one of those tournaments that registers an official loss, but but people are making money from that. You know, individuals are making money, and by individuals I mean on the administrative side rather than the players. So it's it's a weird one in terms of mismanagement. And I think it, it really kind of drives home the point of the ECL um, of having vision and then trying to execute it the right way and what it can do for not just the, the tournament itself, but the game and the players involved. Uh, but it was very, very, very disappointing from the GT20, which is a very much mixed bag. It's great to see people like Saad Ben Zafar being given a stage for their cricket and given the ability to improve their performances by getting the exposure that, that Saad has gotten from, from the first and second years of the GT20. But what does it really mean if it's unsustainable beyond, what, like two, three years? Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting that you talk about the the union moment and the need for a union. And it makes me think of um, the Australian pay dispute with the, you know, the Australian cricketers and, and Cricket Australia. And the, you know, they brought in David Peaver, who has a history of um, working you know, in the corporate sector as, as essentially as a, a union busting kind of move. And their approach was very adversarial and very, I guess, hostile to the idea of a union. So I think cricket administration has this problem where they, they view their players not as not as people and not as workers in, a, in an industry, but they view them as, as a product. And that sort of filters down into the relations between the, the boards and the players, which uh, leads to these really unhealthy confrontational problems. So I think, yeah, you're quite right. If, if there's an international cricketers union that would... Uh, advocate for all cricketers, uh, you know, whatever the tournament is, rather than on a piecemeal country by country basis. I, th- I think that would be a really good step forward. Yeah, and with the growth of emerging cricket, or at least the p- potential of growth in emerging cricket, and new ways of financial income, and and how players are paid through 
franchise leagues and, and other competitions around. One thing that the sport at this level does need to catch up on is having something like a, a unified players association throughout players at this level of the game because, you know, there isn't really a unified way of going about things. And we see these players facing quite different um, struggles to those playing from, from full, full member countries as well. So it, it becomes more important for players at this level to, to find viable income streams because they are sacrificing uh, days of paid work in, in other facets of their you know respective lives. You know, they're, they're not 365-day-a-year cricketers. So <clears throat> something does need to be addressed on, on that uh, front. And it's good that a situation like the Canadian Global T20 pay issue did come up because... It forces people to, to rethink how that is all going to go down in the future, which, you know, was will potentially hope will potentially help uh, the structure going forward. But it, yeah, again, it, it does highlight the, the growing pains that we do see in the emerging game. Some other uh, cricket that did go on uh, at this point of the year. Uh, we saw the Pacific Games in the East Asia Pacific region, of course. The PNG men were too good once again, but it was Samoa who got their revenge. And Nick, we did talk about it briefly before when we talked about the qualifiers, but it's good to see the, the Lures uh, in competition there with, with Samoa and, and Regina Lalie once again uh, stepping up. For PNG men, uh, it was a pretty uh, cruisy tournament for them, and it, and it I suppose it was a good lead-up for their World Cup qualification campaign, but the T20 format is the format that they definitely specialise in, and they showed it here. Yeah, the the PNG men, as you said, uh, won pretty comfortably through the tournament. Were undefeated. Great effort by the home side for the women. To you know, it was played in Apia, and they beat PNG in the final. And Regina Lilly was the top run scorer for that competition so again uh, being very important in terms of their top order but I was really impressed with the the wicket-taking ability of the um, the Samoan women you know they had uh, Lagi Talia and Talali Yosefa who were both uh, in, in the double figures in terms of taking wickets over the tournament so they they bowled really really well which allowed uh, Regina Lilly to, to be pretty comfortable in in both chasing and and, and setting targets the men yeah <laughs> What can we say? They're they're just a class above in East Asia Pacific, and you know Vanuatu were competitive at times. Uh, Nalan Nampiko and Josh Ravu both had good performances with the ball, um, but Norman Vanua just basically uh, wrecked Vanuatu in the final there with five for seventeen, and um, the Vanuatuans just just couldn't handle it. And we saw in ultimately in in the World Cup qualifiers that PNG are uh, you know top sixteen uh, T20 international team. Um, I would like to see. Obviously, the the Pacific develop a bit more depth, which um, ha- is happening with the women. But um, also worth pointing out, uh, New Caledonia played in the Pacific Games, which they they do on occasion, and I think it's great to see non ICC members being given a, a chance to show what they can do. And um, uh, that's another uh, area that that I'd like to see develops. You know, New Caledonia is very close to Australia, but it's also got that uh, French connection, and so it's not traditionally a Commonwealth country. So yeah, good good to see uh, good to see them fielding a team. Um, and yeah, and also too, some news on the on the Vanuatu front was Andrew Mansali stepping down as as captain earlier in the year, and Nalan Nipico uh, taking over the role. He's had a pretty good twelve months of, of cricket, so hopefully the weight of captaincy is not too much for for his shoulders. But yeah, for PNG it was a, a fantastic year, and we will discuss that at length when we do come around to the World T Twenty qualifiers a little bit later on. Uh, let's have a look from some of the continental qualification for that T20 World Cup, or the two T20 World Cups, I should say. 
uh, and look to Asia because we saw Singapore triumph over a perhaps more fancied Nepal. We also saw Qatar also playing quite well, some good individual performances there as well. But Singapore doing the job over Nepali opposition. And we saw, of course, Thailand uh, once again flex their muscles before going on to the T20 World Cup qualifier. It shows that this region of the world is becoming better across the board in terms of the overall quality of the teams. It's not a cakewalk for Nepal anymore in this Asian qualifier by any stretch. And Singapore proved that in in the men's side with, with Thailand being too good from the women's side, Tim. Yes, well, from a Thai point of view, I get there's a the threat of stratification, perhaps as Thailand gets better and better, um, and we'll talk about them more as we get to the the, the latter stages of, of the year and our our summary. Good to see the likes of Indonesia. Um, more and more women are taking up the sport there. They're sort of cross cultural. They've sort of busted through that ceiling of getting into a lot of the different communities of Indonesia and having a real team that represents Indonesian communities. Uh, so the Indonesia population, I should say, which is great. You know, they. I think from the interview with uh, Nick from the Philippines in late uh, 2019, them talking about them wanting to be a test nation within five years or 10 years, you know, but with over 60,000 people playing cricket and with the growth potential there, um, and especially how well their women have done, as well as, well, the UAE have come from a, a bit of, from nowhere from a women's point of view. It's good to see these teams uh, evolving quite quickly. I remember when the UAE wasn't included in the Asia qualifiers back in uh, 2016, 2017, because they were seen as not being up to standard. And, and, and now they've sort of going from strength to strength and almost there is the the number two spot behind Thailand. On the men's side, yeah, I think you, you said it well about the, the emergence of Singapore. Well, whether that emergence is about the format and whether these teams are closer because the T20 games, but how well they prepared for that in that you know remembering that they went off to Pakistan and, and selected players to play against that they knew they'd be coming up against in that qualifier. Um, no doubt they had leg spinners aplenty to simulate playing against Sandeep. But the way that Singapore played in that event, I think will be a lesson for any other team coming into qualification tournaments about how to prepare. Um, Qatar, as you mentioned, were, were impressive. They ended up coming second and, and Nepal third. And I think that sort of continued the... Well, we talk about the likes of Kenya being inconsistent. I think Nepal have been the same, and I know we've spoken about them at length, but how, you know, it's easy to look down on the Nepal side and say, dearie me, fellas, you know, you've got so much talent, you should be doing better. Uh, this is from a men's point of view. But really, the fact that they've done so well when they've had basically no administration and no domestic cricket, we should probably look at it that way, and it's actually quite positive. But yeah, the way that Singapore played was heartening. The emergence of Tim David on the international scene, and good to see him back in the BBL squad for the, the Scorchers. They're struggling a bit, so we might actually see him get some game time in the Big Bash. But yeah, I think it was good that Singapore didn't disappoint too much either when they got their chance on the global stage. Yeah, you're right, Tim. Um, I, I think the thing with Singapore is... We were expecting them after they beat Scotland, and we'll we'll get to that. But you know, after they they started really well in the uh, global qualifier, they really looked like they belonged. So it wasn't just a, a flash in the pan thing. You know, beating Nepal in that Asia qualifier, it, it seems like it's um systematic. You know, they've got a young team with with a lot of uh, a lot of good players coming through, and it seems like the scene there in Singapore is. Uh, very healthy, which is great for the region. And once again, as you said, the, the depth of, of cricket, um, you know, we keep seeing new teams popping up and, and being competitive. And uh, I think it's a really exciting time for, for Asian cricket. 
Yeah, Tim, you made a really good point there about Sandeep, and we discussed it in one of the podcasts early in the year, and it's almost a detriment now that Sandeep plays so much television cricket now because there is the chance that, that people know how to to play against him first you know you emerge as an unknown quantity and now all of a sudden you know people are dissecting your bowling more than your own coaches or even yourself so for for Sandeep it's a new challenge and he's starting to experience that I know that this year has become a little bit of second year syndrome for Sandeep where his numbers probably aren't quite as good as the year before he's still performing quite admirably admirably it must be said um, but for someone like Rashid Khan, who's gone from strength to strength, it only just shows how good he is to to keep you know producing the results at such a high level, even now with with so much exposure. For Singapore, they 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 showed their their quality. Um, there were a couple of fault points, you know, in the World Cup qualifier a little bit later on in the year, and we and we might get to them. Uh, they're probably a couple of plays short from being a, a team that can lift to that next level. But they were too good for Nepal and the and the issues for Nepali cricket were well and truly exposed at that point the lack of domestic structure at that point before the suspension really uh highlighted that the batting frailties especially you know they're never going to have they're never not going to have any problems from the from the bowling side of things but with the batting you can tell that yeah the the, the inexperience and, and the lack of practice showed and yeah to pick up on that Tim David point yeah he has come in as a local replacement and was named in the 13-man squad for Boxing Day. I think they played with something like 21 players last year, the Scorchers, and given their struggles, as you said, Tim, there is a very good chance that we might see him a little bit later on in the competition, which will only bode well from an emerging perspective. Some more stuff going on, and there were other qualifiers around the world in the lead-up to the T20 World Cup qualifier. Uh, we can move to the Americas now, and, and Nick, I do want to bring you in on this because as a Canadian and watching them go through, we also saw a little bit of revenge there against the United States with the US actually not qualifying through there with Bermuda going through instead. Uh, Bermuda not quite performing at the global qualifier, but uh, for the USA, it was a thoroughly disappointing campaign for them on the men's side. Uh, USA getting through on the women's side, but yeah, you have to say that the highly credentialed USA team were really, uh, well, they were, they were really poor. Peter Delapena, uh, who was on the podcast after uh, the men's qualifier, described them, used a, a few D words. Uh, I think it was dismal, disappointing, uh, depressing, quite, quite a few of these adjectives to describe the US performance. Uh, they, I, I don't know what happened. They, they, I mean, it probably didn't help that they just sacked um, slash parted ways with, uh, we're, we're still not sure what exactly happened there, but uh, Pabudu Dasanayaka was no longer their head coach. And of course, Pabudu was the guy who, who coached them through Division 2 uh, into ODI status. So they, I guess, were in a bit of a off-field turmoil as well with um, some administrative stuff going on behind the scenes with a deal they have with um, American Cricket Enterprises, ACE. Uh, but in terms of being on the field, they had a bunch of quality players who just didn't turn up, and and it was quite strange, really. The the Bermudans uh, took advantage to knock them out with two emphatic victories, and I must say, yes, as as a Canadian, I was um I was quite happy to see them dominate over the Americans, uh, the oldest rivalry in international cricket, of course, in all international sport, actually. Um, uh, Canada, yeah, the emergence of Ravi Singh as a as a threat in the middle order who absolutely pummeled runs at a astonishing strike rate Dylan Haliger bowled well um the spin combination also and Navneet Dhaliwal who was appointed captain after the i guess failure at division 2 and and David Jacobs 
uh, focusing more on his, uh, he owns a construction business, which obviously is paying him a lot more than the <laughs> the Canadian uh, Cricket Administration can afford. So he, he's focusing on that, which is a bit of a shame because he's a quality player. But yeah, the, the Canadians turned it around with, with Navneet Dhaliwal in charge and, and he batted really well. So that was, that was exciting to see. They didn't quite get over the line in the main qualifiers, but um, this shows that they have actually... Uh, at least, at least to some extent, uh, recovered from the ignominy of, of, of being dumped out of Division 2. Uh, we did see the emergence of a few talented American players coming through. Lisa Ramjet, just 14 years of age, playing for the American women's team. They were a class above in that America's qualifier didn't quite produce it when we eventually discussed the, the T20 World Cup qualifying what do we think the future holds for USA women's cricket here, Nick? Because there's a few people working in the in the USA side of things. We we know about Julia Price, who does a lot of work here as well as working uh, actually on the books at the Brisbane Heat. Do we really know what, what the future holds for them? Because it, it seems like an even trickier period for them, given the politics, but also given perhaps the level of the team not quite being as good as their male equivalents. It's a tricky situation for them because they, they play so rarely that it, it's hard to really gauge where they're at. But I guess bringing in someone like Julia Price, whilst a good move, I think it's it's, it's not really going to address the systematic issues because you know she, she comes in and, and coaches them for a couple of weeks and then um, I guess goes back to her day job in, in Australia, which obviously she needs to support herself. But the fact that the Americans... Their team, you know, you look at someone like Lisa Ramjet, who actually is uh, a young woman who's come through the local club scene in America, and I think that's where the Americans should be looking. Um, I, I think the Americans, in terms of building up their local cricket scene, they need to be picking from their home players more rather than just, oh, you know, someone, oh, they, they played in a test-playing country, so they must be good, which I think is logic that it, it manifests itself across a lot of associate countries, but I, I think it's often wrong. And looking elsewhere at the American women's setup, someone like Erica Rendler is, I believe, a, a template that they could follow. She's a um, former hockey player at uh, college level who was introduced to cricket and converted because obviously um, being a, a talented athlete, a lot of the skills are transferable. And this is something Peter Delapena has, has talked about, just looking at where talented athletes exist in America. It's, it's often you know the college scene that you can recruit from. And I believe one of the other American women uh, players used to play college football as well. Uh, so it's something that they have dipped their toes into. But you know, looking at that pool of athletes who, given the opportunity to play for the US in in another sport, I, I think that's going to be a, a lure that would attract quite a lot of people to, to play for the American team. And so instead of having someone who has born and grown up with cricket, looking to convert Americans to you know introduce them to the game and, and, and give them the opportunity to represent their country with cricket, I think that would be worth exploring a lot more than they currently do. So picking from the local club scene and um, converting other athletes to cricket are two avenues that I think they should be going down more than just bringing in people who have played cricket in, in other countries. And I think this goes to the heart of the challenges of the new administration, I guess you'd say a new CEO with a deal with American Cricket Enterprises as to how they not only nurture the interest that's there, you know, there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of cricketers within the United States, but none, oh, sorry, not all of them necessarily link in to USA Cricket, the, the official governing body, but it's how they 
convert the cash that's coming in for this major and minor league on the men's side, but also don't leave women's cricket by the wayside. So a lot of challenges there in a vast nation of many people with a lot of people playing cricket as to getting their priorities straight because the last thing you want to see is with women's cricket flourishing around the world and such an opportunity here in the States if it's not taken up and, and not focused on enough. Yeah, well said, boys. I'm very interested to see where the American game goes next. You know, there's been several different groups and organizations who have been brought in to try and address the situation. And that actually goes back a long time. You know, I was listening to some Boxing Day test coverage and uh, Ian Chappell was discussing uh, with Julia Price when when he was there uh, briefly doing some consultancy work. Not too sure where that's going to go in 2020 and beyond. Uh, do we dare talk about the lack of no Euro T20 Slam or are we happy with the discussion that we've already had in bits and pieces on it? Because, you know, the more I talk about it, the more depressed I get, to be perfectly honest. Well, I think we covered everything, didn't we? It's it's it, it could have been a massive opportunity if it was executed right. There was nothing about it that was executed remotely right from the get-go. And whether or not it happens next year is, is a massive question remaining. And, and I don't think that many of us will have high hopes for it in any guise that it may continue. So it's a sad, sad reality. I think the, the, the three boards that I've, I've spoken to extensively about about the slam are a lot more hopeful than I am, but, but you know, I'm a glass half empty kind of gal. Yeah, just knowing that how many hurdles are in the way and knowing how much those boards, uh, particularly Ireland, are, are struggling in uh, financially with, with a bunch of problems going on there, uh, the likelihood of, of an event going on next year is slim, I think. Uh, we could talk about the... Cricket World Cup League 2, which of course began at this point. 36 one-day internationals for all of these countries over the next uh, two, a, two and a half years. Uh, what have we made of the, the Cricket World Cup League 2 structure thus far? Takes away from the surprises and the upsets and the drama of the World Cricket League structure that we have had previously. But the overwhelming positive which does override that i think is that we have uh, a stable base platform of games for these players to all play in uh every team gets a pretty good opportunity and this stretches to the challenge league as well which we will discuss in a minute but it gives the players a little bit more stability and the team's a little bit more of an opportunity to produce good performances and not have to worry too much about promotion and relegation through the old world cricket league system is that a sentiment that you agree with tim yeah i think it gives us the uh the four c's that we've been looking for for consistent competitive contextual cricket um you know we're waiting to see how this goes from an odi super league point of view with the top 13 teams including the netherlands after winning the world cricket league championship but yeah to see it being fit in between everything else means that we've seen the likes of PNG have played and lost eight ODIs already, and Nepal hasn't played yet. I'm sure that might have something to do with them taking a little bit longer to get their home ground ready for it. But yeah, this is the first iteration of something of, of this breadth. Um, 36 ODIs each, as, as you said. Um, it's going to be the most white ball cricket that these sides will have played in, in well, ICC white ball cricket and 50 over cricket in this 
uh, period of time than they ever had before. So this is exciting um, and how it fits into the World Pathways is, is very important, as you mentioned, with the Challenge League sitting below. No, I'm, I'm happy. Um, I, I think it's in a lot better position than the World Test Championship is is at the minute. And I know there's, there's a definite difference in interest level there in terms of people watching Test Cricket versus these ODIs at the moment. That will change once the ICC sorts out streaming of these matches better. Um, but look, this is really good for those top seven teams and I'm uh, looking forward to seeing how it how it pans out as we get closer to the qualifiers well to keep on to the topic of 50 over cricket yeah, uh, the challenge sense. league which is the tier below cricket world cup league two also began uh, with the first leg in Malaysia Canada off to a, a flyer with four wins and a loss and I suppose we were all aware of Canada's quality here but they produced some outstanding performances putting up 408 against uh, Malaysia who weren't a particularly bad side in this tournament they also collected a win in fact everyone in Group A all collected at least one victory Group A is Canada, Singapore, Qatar, Denmark, Malaysia and Vanuatu Uh, Nick I'll start with you uh it's not really a surprise, but at the same time, you know, we are early into this, this Challenge League. Anything can happen, and with Singapore and Qatar hot in their heels early on, uh, we could have a dramatic field uh, end to Challenge League Group A, even without it being a, a World Cricket League structure. And, I mean, part of the reason this structure exists as it does, you know, talking to Richard Don- Doney, who was... Um, involved very heavily in, in designing the tournament, he made a couple of points. The first was that it's predictable and the second that it's scalable. So, you know, you can then just introduce another league of six teams in the future if, you know, the, the depth or quality justifies it and that it, you know, they instead of playing one tournament and then perhaps not having another tournament for a while because you got relegated, they, they know exactly how many uh, games they've got. And this this is the same with the League 2 system. So, that's, I guess, the, the main priority. Uh, in terms of creating exciting cricket, I, I think we will see a pretty tight finish because, as you say, Canada played really well and, and this was encouraging. You know, Navneet Dhaliwal batted brilliantly and, and, and Ravi Singh kept bashing it and Nitish Kumar hit a magnificent century against Qatar. He was in, in excellent form. So seeing Canada play really well was great. But the fact that they, um, you know, I wasn't happy that they lost to Singapore, but the fact that they did because Singapore just simply played better means that you know th- there is depth in this uh, I guess division or, or you know whatever you want to call it which was perhaps a concern with that one or two teams would run away with it whereas you've got Canada and Singapore and Qatar all finding it out which should lead to some yeah some exciting cricket coming up towards the back end of this tournament looking ahead uh, I mean I'm hoping that Canada's going to be too strong for them uh, but you know they're, they're not too far ahead and, and you know anything can happen and, and I think this is a a much better format, really. Um, as much as I really do enjoy the old uh, Cricket World Cup league structure, another result worth pointing out, though, is the fact that uh, Vanuatu picked up a win over Malaysia by defending 65, and that was an extraordinary, uh, really, really tense game uh, over at Royal Selangor, uh, with Patrick Matautava picked up a, a fifa, and he's he's um, really come along in leaps and bounds with his bowling. You know, he uh, he's well known for his heroics with the bat and. He he has shown some of that, but his bowling, you know, bowls this nagging right arm seamers that just dibble a bit and cut off the pitch slightly. And he's the kind of bowler that's that's tough to get away. And um, he he showed that by bowling Vanuatu to victory there against against Malaysia and bowling them out for fifty two. Yeah, I think the Challenge League question remains as to 
bundling more or less three divisions of World Cricket League will will bring us the results that we're after uh, in terms of improving the quality there rather than just continuing stratification within it of the better teams getting better and the and the weaker teams not picking up any points or any quality wins. Uh, what time will tell, but I, I, I think all of these countries will really appreciate the consistency of the schedule and then being able to plan ahead. Um, as Donny talked about it being predictable and scalable, the predictability is probably the most important thing to these nations with um, the majority, if not all the players being amateurs, if not semi-pros and needing to take time off other work to be able to play. Um, and then the countries being able to plan ahead uh, if there are any uh, prep tours or uh, training programs before, beforehand. So, you know, the, the thing we talk about in emerging cricket is, is how unpredictable plans are from the, the ICC around funding and fixtures. And I think this is a step in, in the right direction. And, and maybe to, to the detriment of the, the consistent quality of the cricket where World Cricket League always ensured that the best teams from a particular tournament went up and went down, where this one uh, is sort of all ranked in the past, if you like. But I think the countries involved will will probably be taking this over the old format. Well, to move it to Challenge League Group B, which uh, was hosted in Oman, at least its first leg, uh, we saw perhaps a surprise in Uganda taking out that leg of the tournament, winning five matches uh, in a row. Uh, we saw Hong Kong with three wins as well to be positioned in, in second on seven points. Uh, and had they not won on their final day, uh, there would have been a five-point gap, a two-and-a-half-win gap between Uganda and the rest of the field already. So thankfully for, I suppose, uh, the closeness or you know the, the, the tightness of the tournament, we haven't seen an early leader uh, by a proficient amount. But... We look at, at teams like Bermuda, who, of course, also played in that qualifier as well, uh, struggle here in, in Challenge League Group B. Uh, we've seen Kenya as well, uh, and Jersey also pick up wins. Uh, Bermuda, the only winless team there with just the one point, one of those games being a no result. Uh, some unseasonable weather uh, in the Middle East, with actually, which actually affected Cricket World Cup League too as well. Uh Nick, have we seen... Is this a surprise that Uganda are off to such a flying start? I know that Dennis Musali in a few minutes' time will give his take and will probably tell us that, you know, he told us so. But again, it, it looks as if, you know, Uganda's making the early running here and, and just putting the pressure on everybody else. Yeah, they're certainly in a good position. Um, I don't know if it's a surprise exactly. They've always had a pretty good team. It's just they've they've often underperformed so it's it's more that they're sort of reaching their their actual level of potential and that's good sign that they're actually playing well and they look like a really well-balanced team you know they've got guys like Arnold Otwani and um, of course Nakrani and you know, so they've got a pretty strong middle order as well as Shazad Ukani who um, provides some some starch down there as well and uh, you know looking at um, who else they can bring in. I wish they had Zephaniah Aranatwe, who I think is one of the uh, most exciting young cricketers coming out of Africa at the moment. Yeah, big big hitter at the top of the order. So, you know, if they bring him in, I think they just look stronger. Um, so, yeah, with a one-and-a-half win lead over Hong Kong, uh, they're in a really good position. Italy as well is another one there that I, I thought, you know, I, I think that's more of a surprise. You know, they only scraped into this Challenge League uh, structure by, by virtue of um, of their finishing, I think there was 32nd or 33rd, so they were only just 
in this um, at all. And and yet they you know they picked up a couple of wins and they looked quite good. Um, so I think Italy's a, a more of a surprise than Uganda. And I guess we'll, we'll hear, of course, we'll hear Dennis um, giving his take as you said. But the fact that Uganda finally managed to get one over Kenya in a in an ICC tournament was um, that was probably my highlight of this this uh, Challenge League B so far. Should we get into um, the T20 World Cup qualifier and have Taz just gush about uh, Ryan Tendiscada? Come on, guys. I don't always gush about Tendo, <laughs> but that's obviously exactly what I was planning on doing. No, it's, it's you know, it's... <laughs> I think it was a good tournament in general. Um, it would have been nice to see all of the matches. We all know what a problem it was trying to write up match reports with without the ability to actually watch some of the cricket. So we didn't get to watch all the matches. Um, not everything was broadcast. All of that was a damn shame. But even if it was live streamed, I would have been okay with that. But, but you know, we, we know what the administration problems are. But leaving those aside and leaving the fact that, that these guys are qualifying to basically play another qualifier a year from the original qualifiers to then finally join the rest of the play, uh, the rest of the teams in in the T Twenty World Cup. Again, leaving that aside as well, because if we counted all of the problems in associate cricket, we'd never ever say anything positive. So, um, but it was good. It was good quality of cricket. It was a lot of fun. There were not some any massive surprises really, in, in terms of the sides that qualified. There wasn't a lot between a lot of the teams. I honestly th- thought that Canada were going to get through. Just on the basis of what Nick was saying before, it's a really strong side. They have improved a lot in the last year, or last two years. Um, and and they've, they've got a better team selection than they had a couple of years ago. Um, it's really nice to see players like Vijay Ratne playing, um, you know, really capable batsmen. Capable all rounder actually, but um, but so I was I was kind of surprised not to see them qualify. I think Tim would probably say the same about Hong Kong. Um, UAE had their moments as well, so it was good competition. I think the thing that probably stuck out for me the most, and and I said this to you guys throughout the tournament, before the tournament, everything, is is the lack of Scotland's potency and the lack of strength that they displayed. Um, made a lot of mistakes going in, um, stuck with some bad calculations. I think for me, obviously the standouts were, were PNG was was in a different place from everybody else. Um, but for me, and, and Namibia were great as well. But for me, the Netherlands and Ireland really st- stood out as teams that could be competitive in Australia a year away from the qualifiers. So I think it'll be fascinating to see um, just really well-balanced sides and they've got some bowling uh, attacks that that could prove to be useful on Australian decks um, or have some success in Australian decks. I think it was a good tournament all in all. I, I know that all of us were obsessively covering it. Tim probably more closely than the rest of us, although too many drinks down to be actually obsessively covering it, I think. Um, but yes, Ryan Tendiscata is still the best finisher in the game. That's basically my conclusion. <laughs> well, I didn't drink too much. I think uh, Burtis and I did find uh, refuge at, at a certain sports bar in Dubai Sports City between innings a number of times. Well, between games, I should say, to uh, to file our our podcasts, which were still some of our uh, most listened to. So, yeah, it, it wasn't too bad. And you guys were very studiously covering the games from uh, from a reporting point of view. But, um, yeah, um, agree, re Scotland. And to think about it, if Zimbabwe had been there, which 
um, by rights and um, rankings and whatnot they should have been. And if Nigeria weren't, you sort of think that the quality of the event that we would have had um, with that and potentially how in danger, and I know that's a kind of a, that everything wouldn't have happened the same because it would have been completely different. But you look at the, the rankings and, and how the teams went, if, if Scotland may have struggled to, to even make it if they were just on the fringes the way that, the way that things went. Um, yeah, the negatives around the, around the coverage, the matches that were telecast um, were, were of a, a good quality. It would have been nice to have commentators from the emerging cricket world who actually knew the players that they were talking about. Um, that was a, frust- a constant frustration uh, being told where the players are all being born all the time because the only information being available to these commentators with a quick info profiles were, were quite frustrating um, and it was a bit like hearing well like mm-hmm. Groundhog Day hearing the commentary because it was the same stories going back to rather than talking about the stories of these these cricketers and, and the teams whom they are rep- representing Um Good thing I thought was umpiring. Nobody really talked about umpiring, um, which is always a good thing. But remembering they didn't have any um, video facilities whatsoever. And in all the television games that that, that I watched, um, I actually spoke to Jeff Crow afterwards when he was in Australia recently. He said there were a few issues in some of the non-TV games. But everything I watched, I, I did not see a stumping or run-out decision that was made on field be being correct and I think in the, in the world that we, we have now where umpires rely on on the, the TV uh, umpire so often in international cricket that they actually had, had to make the calls it was quite strange to watch because you watch a, a stumping chance or a run out chance and you just think oh well we're going to have to wait for the TV um, umpire to come up with a decision but to see the decisions made and then be generally correct I thought that was a, a, a real positive and bodes well for the future to say that the umpires that are coming through because we didn't have um, the elite panel handling that. Um, but yeah, I think as we look from what this event was and uh, was it the best one yet? I still think the 2015 qualifier between Scotland and Ireland with two TV zones and different groups and the way that it built maybe still had the edge. Um, but as we look into the future and as to whether they're actually going to have a global qualifier of this scale is the question that still hangs in the air in the air and we don't know. And now that Richard Doan, speaking of him, his contract has not been renewed and he won't be part of the development team anymore. Who's actually taking charge of these decisions from a development and associate point of view from within the ICC is the big question. Um, but yeah, I just hope that I wasn't the only person from EC, or well, apart from, from Jay, uh, but I mean on this call, on this podcast, who, who was uh, going, going to be at potential the last global t20 world cup qualifier from a men's point of view yes that was a consideration in not going as it turned out was oh well, you know there's there's another world cup coming up soon they'll have another qualifier soon but likewise yeah apparently potentially not um just going back to your your comments about canada taz yeah i i was very disappointed because i thought i thought they were going through especially after that win against Ireland where they just looked convincing or they had some problems in the in the batting a lot which they didn't really address at, at any point throughout the tournament you know uh, D- Daliwal and Nidish Kumar who was again in, in fantastic form sort of masked a lot of problems and Srimanta where Jairatna is is an interesting point to make about him you know he, he started really well against Oman and, and blasted them everywhere but he sort of ran out of puff uh, and his fitness looked like it could have been better and I think that was something that Daliwal pointed out as a as a problem for Canada was just the the stamina and the fitness of the whole team going through the tournament 
Well, he was, sorry, uh, I'm just going to jump in. He was injured for the GT20 and he was a team manager instead of um, playing at the GT20. Mm. So he had just come back from injury and he's he's another one who works in a bank. He's a banker. And, um, and you know what it is? It's hard to stay international fit or come back from injury when you're working 40 plus hours in a bank, right? Yeah, and, and certainly this goes back to the, I guess, the issues facing a lot of associate teams and that their, their players are not professional and they need to make do with yeah, yeah semi-pro slash amateur players. And the, the fact that he slapped 50-odd against Oman was, was a testament to his talent. But, you know, the fact that he also... Uh, doesn't have the time to to stay fit and you know really go on with that innings. Yeah. You know that's potentially the difference between these teams. And I guess absolutely, there's there's a few other points that I I would uh, I would make about Canada in that I was a bit puzzled in the the fact that they stuck with Nicholas Curtin, who was really struggling and me too, really clogged up that middle order and just batted so slowly. Yeah, I just ate up a lot of balls, yeah. didn't he? And that especially in that game against the UAE where they the yeah. run rate wasn't. Um, you know, it wasn't unmanageable, Insurmountable. but the fact that he yeah. kept chewing up deliveries, it meant that the other guys at the other end had to go big too soon and, and he just kept blocking them out and yeah, it was bizarre. I think Curtin again highlights that point about, you know, yes. guys who play domestic cricket in full member nations and, and yeah. I guess associate teams are perhaps still a bit dazzled by that and, oh yes, well he's played for Barbados, so he must be, he must be good, but you know... Yeah. I think associate cricket has moved on and the quality has gone up. And just because you do play for Barbados doesn't necessarily mean you're better than another guy who has shown form for Canada. Racking up runs for Calgary. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, know, Rizwan Chima is a good example of this. You know, he's he's 40 years old, but he's still one of the better hitters in the Canadian side. And, you know, why was he there if he's not... You know, why is you know why is Nicholas Curtin getting a game ahead of Rizwan Chima? And so they, they just had a few strange selection issues going on. And yeah, you know, why, for example, did Junaid Siddiqui? Uh, I think he only played one game, and, and he one won that in that one game he took one for twenty four of his four overs when the the run rate was a lot higher than that. And it's just some yeah some strange. I guess I don't know. You you look at the coaching staff and um, they had Monty Desai in the, the World Cricket League 2 in Namibia and he moved on and um, they've had Ingleton LeBird coaching them recently who's sort of their uh, go-to backup coach for a number of years now and I, I think he, you know, he tries hard but I think it's probably, again, Associate Cricket's moved on from these sort of, oh yeah, just get a guy who come in for a couple of weeks and, and whatever they needed full-time coach to, to really have a coherent plan and, and have a coherent um, approach to, to building the team, which, you know, they, they have a lot of talent, but they just haven't, they didn't click together and, and it was really disappointing. I think the Canadian board is um, more mired in some older ideas than some of the other associate countries are, despite the overabundance of talent, with the, which they really have. Like, I, I've had a lot of opportunities to watch their domestic game as well, their domestic cricket and it's of good quality. There's so many talented guys. But I think it's another board that suffers from politicization. I don't mean through the government, but just just, just small-p politics, which is a, a damn shame. And it's something that the game suffers. I mean, you know, Cutler could speak um, for hours about the, the problems with um, Hong Kong cricket and, and small-p politics um, and big-p politics there as well. Um, and it's it's just probably the difference between seeing sides like the Netherlands do what they do or, or Scotland with their capabilities 
and and then a Canada and Hong Kong. Yeah, I might just sort of wrap up uh, a lot of this T20 World Cup qualifier chat, at least on the men's side of things. Yeah, you guys spoke a lot about Canada there. I was going to focus more on the teams that did qualify, but a few teams we haven't really discussed a lot as yet today. Uh, Oman uh, was outstanding, and between them and Namibia, I think they could probably fight over who's had the most successful 2019 from an associate cricket point of view because they've both been excellent and basically achieved uh, all the objectives that they set out to try and achieve in 2019. To look at Oman first, um, it, it was set up a lot by the the opening pair of Kawa Ali and Jatinder Singh and then Zishan Maksud experienced in the middle order. But then you look at the bowling attack, uh, Bilal Khan uh, was outstanding for a lot of it. Muhammad Nadeem gives some quality on both sides of things. Uh, and they had the, the, the spin to back up there as well. But to look at Namibia, I've been thoroughly impressed with, with them. Uh, they're a team that we haven't really discussed in this show yet. So I wouldn't mind giving them a little bit of, of a spotlight here. But to, to think that, you know, yeah, at the start of 2019, they would have earmarked all of these things and they managed to tick just about everything off and almost won everything that they they played in really they had a pretty successful uh tri-series in uh florida with cricket world cup league two after winning world cricket league two at home uh we saw jj smith probably announce himself as one of the best players in the associate game i think herod erasmus has cemented himself as as one of the best players uh in the emerging game they've got to be both uh in the discussion as associate players of the year uh, for Ireland, uh, to think that they weren't at their best and they still qualified relatively easily for the T20 World Cup next year. They got off to a sluggish start. We did discuss Canada beating them there. Uh, Gary Wilson and his captaincy at that tournament, you know, there were a few polarizing thoughts on that, but that's all well and good. They're through now anyway. And the Netherlands, I think the Netherlands, as, as you discussed there, Tasnim, are probably the best equipped side to get something out of the first round next year. But I can see several of these teams, you know, making their way into the next round. Even if both Bangladesh and Sri Lanka go through, we're going to see at least two of those sides go through. Uh, and, and looking at it on paper, I definitely think that either Sri Lanka or Bangladesh could miss out. So looking forward to that. Uh, to look at the women's T20 World Cup qualifiers, and you, and you can't really discuss the women's qualifiers without discussing the triumph of Thailand uh, in the tournament. Uh, Thailand can't believe it was the words that were echoed around the world through the through the streams. <laughs> uh, but they really have been arguably the greatest success story of 2019 from an uh, emerging cricket perspective. Uh, we saw Chatira Wang take out the emerging, oh, sorry, the Associate Player of the Year on the women's side of things at the ICC Women's Awards. What can we say about Thailand that hasn't been said already? It's been a momentous achievement. Uh, it's been a 10-year process or a little bit longer of uh, cricket coming through in the country. Uh, and we're, we're starting to see the fruits of their labour. And we get to see the next year here in Australia, Tim. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Um, again, helped by Zimbabwe not being at the global qualifier, yes, but you can only beat the teams that you come up against. And that match, beating Ireland with the calm uh, that they showed in slippery or greasy conditions and well, if greasy foreign conditions, although we, we know that they continue their winning ways even with their, their T20 streak extended out to that series in the Netherlands, um, there's just 
amazing and to, to hear them or to, to, to read them talking about the prep that they've had for the the t20 world cup they're not going there to make up the numbers they're they're picking out their targets and they'll have plans you know you want want to know more about them just go to go to the website and read Nashad's two pieces on them there's no point me trying to fill in the gaps there with the chinese whispers to explain it there, there's so much there about the the background of um, these amazing women and can't wait to be getting around australia however far i'll be able to get to uh, to watch them in those those round games and look I wouldn't be surprised if they surprise a few I look it's going to be tough going considering the teams that they're coming up against and you could see the difference in class with Bangladesh in a couple of tight spots at the the qualifiers but coming through undefeated but look it's just a great story for cricket in general and I, I mean cricket with an asterisk not women's or men's or any particular format it's just this is what cricket's all about yeah, it's also worth noting too that Bangladesh have once again qualified for the Women's T20 World Cup. They did compete uh, in the West Indies as well. Uh, they'll have their work cut out for them, of course. Uh, looking at, at Thailand's group uh, next year, they play England, South Africa, the West Indies and Pakistan. So certainly uh, not an easy task for them, but they'll be up for it and hopefully will be around the country uh, watching that tournament uh, on behalf of all of you, the fans of the Emerging Cricket uh, website and podcast, of course. Uh, staying on, on women's T20 cricket, it is also worth noting too that uh, Nepal had one of the few T20 women's franchise leagues. Uh, many full members uh, can't boast a T20 women's franchise league, but Nepal were able to get one off the ground with the Chitwan Rhinos winning the tournament uh, and it's probably just a continuation of all the good work that a lot of these leagues have been doing in the absence of the previously suspended uh, Cricket Association of Nepal, Tim. We've seen a, an emergence of entrepreneurs and, and other people banding together and making tournaments like this and given the absence of the board, it, it, it took someone else to step up and, and thankfully there were a few generous people from Nepali cricket who were able to to get these tournaments off the ground and, and yeah showcase uh, talent on both the men's and women's side across the world. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point uh, about Nepal. We talked about it before how, how the game's been sustained without a an active administration and the fact that the the sport's been propped up by franchise events, male and female, is interesting. And considering the ICC was still charging these events uh, a sanctioning fee which I think is a bit rich in a country where you're not doing much to to grow the game but they're still having a budget I can't remember what it was 25 or 50,000 US dollars or whatever um, when nothing is happening um, and that will mean we have an interesting transition period that's if we put it that way over the next couple of years where Nepal administrators hopefully take more charge over the game's uh, structure there and what part these private leagues have. Um, you know, we can talk more about the sort of club versus country question across the world, but I think it's going to be even more well, imminently having to be answered in, in Nepal to see how they um, can coexist. Um, we've just had the Pokhara Premier League finish. We've got the Dangadi Premier League coming up and the Everest Premier League um, in, in the next couple of months. Um, to see how the game there is. I'd look, there's enough interest there. You've got 30 million people and it's quickly becoming the most popular sport in the country. But yeah, it was, it was great to see the private enterprise step up um, where the, the administrators weren't. And, and finally, just to stay uh, in the region, we also had the South Asian Games uh, just a couple of weeks ago played out uh, and cricket competing in them. We saw 
Uh, the Maldives compete. Uh, we also saw uh, Bhutan as well. Uh, on the men's side of things, the Maldives did compete in both men's and women's tournaments. Uh, under 23 full members uh, on the men's side uh, from Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. The Bangladesh women's uh, senior team played in the competition as well as the Sri Lankan under 23s. Uh, we, we did see the Bangladesh and Sri Lankan sides run away with things and, and Nepal taking bronze in, in both. Uh, the Maldives having a little bit of their own sca- uh, stats gate moment there and Bhutan also competing. A uh, few records around, but yeah, it's just a, another showcase of uh, a multi-sport games uh, taking cricket and, and running with it, Nick. Yeah, we, we talk about this a lot and, and I'm sure Tim will be able to, to give some um, insight on the administrative side of things. But in terms of the exposure, just the fact that you know these matches are happening in a multi-sports game just puts it on such a, you know, a much bigger platform than if you know, Nepal had just randomly played some bilaterals against the Maldives. Not, you know, not that there's anything wrong with bilaterals per se. It's just the the platform of multi-sport games and, and of course, the government funding that comes with it is so important to growing cricket. And the fact that cricket is in both the Asian games and the South Asian games uh, shows, once again, the, I guess, the strength of the sport in, in this region. And um, I think, yeah, as, as we've said before, this is one of the regions where, where cricket's really um, really booming and this uh, this this tournament is, is another example of that. Yeah, I think uh, anyone that's been listening to the podcast this year will have heard us talking about it a lot, but the funding that this unlocks from government coffers directed to Olympic Games, um, of which all of these multi-sport games fall under the umbrella of, um, really you know, is too much to be ignored. We're hoping that cricket will be in the Olympics in 2028. Cricket is in the Commonwealth Games in 2022 for women which is superb but yeah it's it's no surprise to see it stronger in asia south asia southeast asia but also the pacific games as, as we've touched on it is great to see but um yeah the asian games didn't have it there for an iteration in jakarta in 2018 because it was going to cost too much to develop the grounds required which was very disappointing but it sounds like the icc and the um, the ACC are getting more involved in this um, to try and hold the um, Asian Olympic Council's hand to make sure that cricket stays in it. But this brings the question again of India's issue with Olympic inclusion. Um, it's noteworthy that India has never sent any of their sides to any of these multi-sport games. So that impasse still exists um, and rift between the the BCCI and the Indian Olympic Committee, which is, well, concerning. And I guess as we look forward and, and talk about things more broadly on a on a global governance basis, that the India um, question around uh, the, the new potential four-team super series every year and non-Olympic inclusion and pushing back on, on global events, you know, is becoming more and more obvious, which is, is disappointing. But hopefully... Now, asking the ICC uh, during the T20 World Cup qualifier whether the Olympics was still on the on the table because it hadn't been mentioned a long time. It was the answer was a vehement yes. Um, I just hope that uh, the sooner we can get this locked in, the better, um, and we can tap into that support from the Olympic committees around the world. Yeah, another complexity I think to add to that. Um... The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, and um, India's Olympic Committee have had some disagreements because of India's politicization of sports or or their 
the fact that they allow a lot of political issues to creep into sports. I think that's a big factor because the IOC is nowhere near as passive as the ICC is um, in regards to that. So so I think it's not just the fact that 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 they're hesitant or reticent to, to make cricket an Olympic game. I think it's bigger political issues. They know that a suspension will be handed down from the IOC for the political involvement that they have in the game, um, whereas the ICC is much more of a capitulating administrative body so uh, you know like I'm, i don't want to get into india pakistan politics but but that's that's kind of the way that that cricket administration tends to go and and i don't think that that cricket is the best sport for having a uniform um approach to administrative boards globally it is a tough situation and um you know you, you can't really get around the fact that india is the biggest market and the bcci is uh, stranglehold on cricket in India is something that everybody needs to work around. And, and you know, looking at where the administration can go in the future, it does seem like India is getting more, uh, I guess, belligerent in terms of, uh, you know, defying the ICC and, and trying to stop the ICC from uh, doing various things which would quite likely be good for the game so that's going to be a, a, an issue to be managed there's it's a tough one yeah there's yeah, not a we uniform all know the reality of the, sport. the boards but that's because one of the boards has such disproportionate power and what do you do in that situation ideally you well as a governing as as an administrative um centralized body you don't grant them power that that's so you know you don't let india monopolize the sport um, they couldn't if, if the ICC didn't allow them to, and that's that's the reality of it, isn't it? This even I know we, we said that we probably weren't going to get into this big three series thing um, where they might throw a bone to a fourth uh, test-playing nation and allow them to, to come play with the big boys, but that's exactly what it is. It's, it's indicative of... A, a yeah, and it's one the- finger up back at the ICC, yeah. really, isn't it? Yes, I know he said we weren't going to get into it, but it's, it's all happening again. I think uh, Ganguly's got in the uh, DeLorean and gone back to 2014. Yeah, if only all problems could be fixed by um, getting in a, a time traveling car. But um, yeah, look. Hey, there's always the risk that you might accidentally make out with your mom, though. So I don't know what that's going to be in the in this analogy with um, the the cricket. I guess the incestuous <laughs> the nature of the big three situation, maybe. <laughs> but um, yeah, looking looking at what the ICC can do. I mean. Yeah, the, the BCCI has has been very successful at divide and rule, and and I think really what needs to happen is the rest of the cricketing world needs to stand up to them, but they haven't been able to do that effectively. And in terms of the ICC's structure, well, you could implement the Wolf Report, and that might help, but then who's going to vote for that to happen? And now we're back to the the sort of circular problem at the ICC that. You know, in order for the ICC to improve, the big boards need to vote for it to happen, which probably not likely. And another rosy way to f- round out the show at the Emerging Cricket Podcast in 2019. <laughs> well, I, yeah, but we did say that if we listed all the negative things, we'd probably have nothing else to talk about. And, you know, it's just too bad that this news has come out in the last week. And I know I wrote about the, the island cancellations and postponements of their red ball cricket and issues around other series being indicative of, of a broader issue but everything here about the, the the four team series and i know that kevin roberts the cricket australia ceo has come out and said that he's they've only labeled it as innovative from an indian point of view and not said they're going to be part of it but 
Like it's it's all happening again, isn't it? The the ICC went through this and they've implemented a, a lot of the recommendations around the Wolf Report and independent chairperson, um, independent women, uh, sorry, a woman uh, director, etc. And taking away the grip of the major committees from the big three, um, but you know, in the meantime of doing that, India demanded another hundred million dollars to sign on out of the out of the pot, and we know where that came from. Budgets are being slashed at the ICC. Major people are being let go. There's a new CEO in there on a cost-cutting strategy, and now we've got India coming out of uh, the Committee of Administrators Management. And to have uh, figureheads who's apparently a reformer, um, or quite progressively saying that he wants to get India's fair share, it's it's all happening again. And like, well, you posed the question, Nick. You know, that are the turkeys going to vote for Christmas? Well, we've seen what happened. You know, India, Australia, and England told everybody. I mean, all the associates that there would be more money to go around, and although they'd be getting a smaller slice of the pie, it would be worth more than what it was. And and that hasn't been forthcoming associates collectively are are worse off now than they were at the start of this cycle when they first looked at to divide the money up so you know promises have been broken and cricket you know has been less there's less investment in in the the game's development offices are not growing They're, they're reducing the numbers of people around the world and the world cup hasn't grown and which is still the figurehead event as far as i can see t20 said that it's going to be the the growth format of the game, but the 50 over game, the 50 over format at World Cup is, is still number one and it's a 10 team event. So, you know, it's, it's the circles turning, but back to almost worse than it was before and during the big three reforms. So look, it's unfortunately, that's just the, the reality. And if you can show me where it's got better, I'm happy to, but I think in a lot of instances, it's been getting better in spite of what's been happening from a global scale. And the only shining light, well, there's a few shining lights, you know, the women's cricket's one of them, but the T20 international status, funny enough, people want to poo-poo, but it's probably been the shining light of it all happening. No, too right, Tim. And even in spite of, of all of the issues off the field going on, the players uh, have never played at a level this high, uh, I don't think ever. And 2019 was a good showcase of of some of the best cricket at this level of the game. And we've seen quite a number of teams showcase their talents. Uh, yeah, again, looking at that qualifier and teams like Oman and Namibia coming into almost the mainstream of, of teams now qualifying for uh, global tournaments. And yeah, again, in spite of all of the things that are going on off the field and and making a lot of these guys try to play cricket with one arm behind their back, which would be incredibly uh, hard to do, by the way. Uh, they've all managed to to do exceedingly well and and it's why we keep coming back to to following the emerging game because it is so enjoyable to watch and there is a lot of competition and competitiveness amongst all the teams and yeah you only have to look at some of the the full member matches going on at the moment which are a little bit more lopsided and you do have to ask yourself which part of the sport do you prefer watching at the moment it's probably the emerging side which is hopefully going to translate well in the future when a lot more of these countries are, are pushing for some higher honours. Well, that that's, the I guess, the fundamental issue here is that what is the ICC's product? The ICC's product is cricket. It's international cricket. And <laughs> looking at where they're getting their product from, matches happening and, and players putting in good performances, 
the associate game is there in terms of the quality. This is this is stuff that they should be marketing and they should be making a profit out of because it's great cricket. It's exciting cricket. It's it's close cricket. It's it's a lot of the time it's everything that you know the full member game stumbling along is not. And and the fact that there's this fantastic product that they have and you know we talk about how okay well maybe it's happened despite their efforts or, or whatever but the fact is that associate cricket is 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 an excellent product and they're just not doing anything with it you know they barely stream it you know you don't know matches are going on nobody follows it or cares there's there's barely anything mentioned on you know you look at the ICC's Twitter feed and they're mostly just doing birthdays for full member players or you know updates from from bilateral full member matches rather than their own tournaments and it's it's a bizarre situation where I don't know. It's like if you you have a a, a factory and you're producing something and and you're trying your best to stop people from buying it. it it's bizarre that they okay, have this Nick, approach. you got me going as well. I'm going to keep going. Yes, and I think that's the whole issue that I have with this proposed super series is that just when the ICC seems to, and I'm not saying grappling back control, but taking control of an international game by implementing global leagues that in time post 2025 or maybe sooner when countries media rights deals come up for renewal, that they can take more charge of this from a, a global basis and have a global pot of media rights for these leagues. And when you've got the big three running off and making their own league, which will only reduce and dilute the value of any of these other global leagues going on and say, well, you know, we're allowed to make money. It's like, no, what you're basically doing is going against the whole point of having an ICC that there is for the global value of the game. And this is money that could be reinvested into, you know, I know everyone's talking about DRS at the moment, but... Um, uh, technology around that side, but the, the greater broadcasting and popularizing of the game throughout those global leagues, and th- this that is what really gets me about this big three plan, and that and also the perspective of fans that don't understand that the ICC's money come from its global events. It's not handed money by India. Or all of its money comes by from India. It's like, well, actually, no. The majority of its money comes from a a US owned uh, television. Um, behemoth being Disney that now owns Star. Um, it's yeah, yes, and it's through an Indian market. But if you run off now and make this yearly ge- series between four nations, including the big three, and they're out there trying to find the, the biggest bidder for that, what does that do to the market for the international leagues that could have actually been the next step in making cricket the world's favourite sport? You know, I know that the ICC don't use that terminology anymore because everything they did after basically um, hammering that that placard to their, their front door was in the opposite of making, making your world events smaller. But then, you know, if this is allowed to happen, a four-team series like this flying in the face of the ICC's own own rules and regulations around um, bilateral tournaments, uh, it'll just show that how much of a toothless tiger the ICC is, and I think it really bodes poorly for the future of the global game. If these three nations do say yes to this, it really does tell us how they feel about the game outside their shores. Well, and, and you mentioned the BCCI and the, you know, the the market of the Indian viewers, it's its almost a sort of feudalistic idea here where the BCCI uh, is essentially taking the line that it owns every single eyeball in India. And in order to access those eyeballs, you need to come through the BCCI. And that's why it's extorting so much money from the ICC's uh, common, common revenue. Whereas, you know, the reason the ICC makes money is because they uh, run cricket tournaments and, and people around the world 
a lot of them in India, watch these cricket tournaments. Regardless, you know, the, the BCCI's involvement here is essentially limited to putting their logo on, on the team of Indians at one of these cricket tournaments. And taking the line that every single Indian fan belongs to the BCCI is, I, I think, uh, well, I mean, in a way, it's, it's, it's pretty insulting to Indians, really. Once again, an excellent discussion from you two, Tim and Nick. And yeah, so glad to have you uh, on board today, Tasneem, as well, giving your two cents on a world of cricketing issues from the emerging game. To move on, we've got a few uh, recordings sent in from a bunch of our emerging cricket contributors who have helped out over the first year of emerging cricket. Uh, They're going to give us some of their favourite moments of 2019. And let's start with Craig White from Mexico Cricket. Hello, mate. I'm uh, delighted to contribute, as always. For me, I would say that our or my highlight of the year was the national, the Central American Championship we had back in April. Um, well, at the time, it wasn't a highlight. It was the worst four days of my life. But looking back. Um, and seeing what a good job job we did and what a good tournament we pulled off. It was definitely a highlight. And my favourite moment, I think, was the women's team. They won their free uh, T20Is against Costa Rica to be the first Central American champions, uh, uh, women's champions. And another highlight of the year was having, uh, of course, the MCC here. And for 2020, we have a very, very busy year coming up. Um, so as you know, we are moving towards a federation. We've submitted the paperwork, and fingers crossed, in the early part of 2020, uh, that change will be made, and we'll be a federation. And we've also just brought a new state into Mexico cricket, a Corretoral state, and they will join the expanded national championship, which goes to four teams uh, from next year. And so speaking personally, the book is almost, almost, almost done. So I'm aiming to have that done by the early part of next year. Let's hear from another one of our AC contributors, Dan Kelly. Hey, boys. Thanks for having me on the show. When Nick asked me to give him a moment of the year, I sort of had to think and pause for a minute about what I could possi- what you could possibly say because it's been such a big year for associate cricket. So I've narrowed it down to two. So my actual moment of the year and something I'll probably never forget from an associate cricket point of view is those Papua New Guinean boys sitting up on the deck when they realised they'd qualified for the T20 World Cup. Not only had they done it through automatic qualification, which was just so impressive, but just to see the scenes of jubilation amongst those guys when they'd realised they'd finally done it, that's something that I'll probably never forget and... Personally, I'll make, I reckon I'll make a couple of shockwaves in Australia next year. I know you boys agree, but who knows? Let's see if they can overtake the cricket world. But um, just to sort of see those guys, and after what happened at the start of the year with the under-19s and a lot of negative press around Papua New Guinea and cricket, to see what those fellas have done for their country and for young fellas who want to play cricket, I think that that's just they'll move along in leaps and bounds from this, and I think it's only upwards for the, uh, the Barramundis looking forward into the cricket year in 2020. For my personal moment of the year, I think I'm a bit biased here because I've covered a lot of Jersey cricket this year through the Emerging Cricket website. And just to sort of see the meteorotic rise of the Jersey cricket team is just something that I have really been marveled by over the whole year. To 
see them take take that European contingent of the T20 World Cup qualifiers in a group that a lot of people fancied the bigger countries like Italy and Germany to see them go through that, win it, albeit on the last the last over, the last what, whatever you call it with that net run rate. But to see them take that competition, go to the T20 qualifiers in the UAE and finish with a respectable 3-3 three and three record, I thought that that was... Pretty impressive considering when you think about the size of their country. And they've got such a brimming developing setup over there at the moment. They they went to the under-19 European Cricket World Cup qualifiers and they beat the Netherlands. They finished third behind um, Ireland and the winners, Scotland. But I think they've got Harry Colley on there at the top. He's only 19 years old, opening for both the 19s and the uh, senior side. And John T. Jenner obviously had an amazing T20 World Cup. He's only 22. So I think that they've got such a... Such a good side at the moment there that's going to be there for years to come. And I think we talk a lot about associate countries, but they're a developing one as well. And they've got a lot of young fellas coming through and some that could be there for the next 10 years. And I think that's just a good building block for a country as small as Jersey that could really look to become a, a cricketing, not necessarily a powerhouse, but a, a team that can really be pushing for those World Cup qualifying spots, winning these competitions like we've seen Papua New Guinea do in who knows? Maybe in the next eight to ten years. So that'd be my um, that'd be my moment of the year, and something that I'm really looking forward to watching in the 2020 year and years to come. Because, like I said, it's such a developing cricket country and cricket program at the moment. And that's um, I've definitely got my eye on the. Uh, and I know we're never short of a uh, a pun on the emerging cricket podcast, but I'm really keen on watching the Jersey Boys, as we say, from 2020 onwards. So that's my um, moment of the year. Like I said, I, I had two because I couldn't really split them. But um, it's just been such a monumental year for associate cricket, like every year seems to be. Hi all, Tim Brooks here. I think my favourite moments of the year have been watching teams like the USA and Singapore really emerge into powerful forces on the associate stage. This is Russell Dignan and thanks to everyone at Emerging Cricket for allowing me to talk through some of my highlights for this year. I think the first and perhaps the biggest one was Thailand qualifying for the T20 World Cup in the women's. It was a fantastic to watch them play. They were professional throughout and Often with associate teams, you, you don't necessarily see them. Uh, some of their basic skills or some of their tactics are a bit off, but Thailand, nothing like that. They were amazing to watch and fully deserve to go to the T20 World Cup. Fantastic as well, obviously, to see you see a nation that's not necessarily one that would come to mind with having a cricket background but also make their way in and, and get onto that world stage. Uh, another really good thing to see this year was the emergence of Nigeria at major events, the under-19, um, qualifying for the under-19 World Cup with the men's and also the T20 World Cup qualifiers. Such a huge potential in Nigeria over the next 20 years as that population explodes and, and they're going to be an absolute powerhouse. So cricket really needs to look at them as a, as a nation that they see as something that's going to be essential to, to being having that potential to, to be on the world stage and to actually start to see those first steps and to, to qualify and, and to get their cricket in order is really good to see. And just in general, the increased depth of associate cricket across the challenge leagues and the, uh, qualifying tournaments was fantastic to see. It bodes really well for the future of the uh, tournament structure that the ICC has put in place. And there was a lot of uh, very close, very exciting matches, very... Uh, surprising wins by different teams. Teams coming out of emerging like Singapore, Jersey as well. They've been around a while, but they're continuing to get better. 
those tournaments have been matched by having an off-field commitment to stream matches and increase the exposure, something we've talked about for years and years, Andrew and myself on the podcast, and having that scene that come in a, into fruition and actually the benefits that are actually occurring and the, the ICC's having those matches streamed has is, is been really good to see. Uh, for next year, things that to look out for, I think, um, is mostly about what the impact of the new board structure is. We haven't really seen it yet, but the ICC is going to come into a period where now we're past the World Cup that they would negotiate on the next uh, TV deal and what will be in it, including whether or not the World Cup will be expanded and whether the T- uh, T20 World Cup will be expanded, um, what that will look like for associate cricket, women's cricket, and um, how those subsequent financial distributions will come into play. So it's a really important time for associate cricket, and with the new board structure, more opportunities for associates to vote and have influence, and uh, more full members, including um, Ireland and Afghanistan, having their votes and independent ICC representation means that uh, how that plays out and what happens in it, it's 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 going to be really fascinating to watch. So that's the thing to really look for, I think, next year, at least off the field. Um, on the field, of course, we'll have a T20 World Cup to look forward to and, and, and lots and lots of associate cricket um, across those challenge leagues. Hi, Neil Joynton here, Emerging Cricket Bermuda correspondent, speaking to you from a lovely sunny day in Hamilton in the island of Bermuda in the North Atlantic. Uh, my highlight of the year is undoubtedly the America's regional T20 qualifier that was held here in August, uh, where the local side Bermuda's Gomby Warriors stunned the USA to qualify for the overall qualifier in Dubai in October. Um, things didn't go so well for Bermuda in Dubai once they got there, but for that one week in August, it was uh, fantastic to see the underdog um really take it to the Americans and, and stun them in front of a fantastic atmosphere of a thousand people there at the ground every day. Um, it was a wonderful experience. Great for me personally too, because it was the first tournament that I've covered as a correspondent for, for EC and uh, it was a thoroughly enjoyable experience. Look forward to more successes for Bermuda and for Emerging Cricket in 2020. Hello fellow Emerging Cricket aficionados. My name is Nishad Rego. I am a contributor to the Emerging Cricket platform uh, and a long-time uh, fan of uh, the game outside of the test-playing world. Uh, a couple of uh, favorite moments from the emerging cricket world this year. The first, of course, being the qualification of the Thailand women's cricket team for the ICC T20 World Cup in Australia next month. Um in particular, watching the semi-final, the must-win semi-final against um, the PNG Lewas uh, was an exciting experience for me, having uh, been brought up in Thailand and played a bit there myself. Uh, and what a clinical performance it was uh, from a team with a wonderful story uh, uh, and um, who have put in a huge amount of hard work over more than a decade to get to where they are and ensure that a first ever uh, Thai cricket team um, will participate in a uh, Cricket World Cup. Um, The second uh, was um, Singapore's triumph over Nepal in the uh, sub-regional qualifier for for the ICC T20 World Cup. Um, Nepal have dominated 
the region for so long at the Asian level. And it was just really heartening to see young homegrown players like Rohan Rangarajan uh, taking seasoned pros like Sandeep Lamechane to task um, to to take Singapore over the line. Uh, a real testament again to the depth of uh, talent uh, in that region. Um, and um, yeah, here's hoping for another uh, killer year in, in 2020 for the emerging cricket world. Cheers. Hi guys, Andrew Nixon here from Cricket Europe. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Happy New Year to yourselves and all your listeners. Um, Choosing just one highlight of 2019 is is a little difficult, so I'm going to choose three. uh, Two on-field and one off-field. For... On field, I'm going to choose first the European Cricket League, which I think was a fantastic event. Obviously, Pavel Florin came out of that, uh, became a bit of a cult hero. But it's just the, the whole thing, the organisation of the event, getting it on TV around the world. I think it just shows that if you put this cricket out of this level of cricket out there, it, it, people will watch it. It has an it has an audience. Um, everybody involved has done a, did a superb job, and I'm certainly looking forward to the uh, 2020 edition. Uh, next, I'm going to choose the from the World T20 qualifier, Papua New Guinea and Namibia, uh, finally qualifying for the event after you're just missing out so many times. Uh, you obviously. Uh, four years ago, they were like, both teams were in tears after missing out in playoff matches, and so it's really great to see those those two guy teams finally qualify for a for a major event. Also, Namibia have been in the ODI World Cup before, but that was a you know, a long time ago now. Um, in terms of off field, I'm going to choose just the impact of Universal T20 uh, T20 international status. Um, it's really, really, really done a good job. It's brought. Um, more teams to a, a greater um, attention around the world, um, and it's annoyed a lot of people as well, which is always good uh, for me. Uh, a lot of traditionalists getting annoyed and not liking that their record books are being sullied by the, these teams. And there's been some great performances as well. Obviously, Uganda women scoring the first ever uh, 300 in a 2020 international. Um, uh, Sudesh Wickramasinghe from the Czech Republic scoring equaling the record of the fastest century, just to name two performances. It would be great if the ICC could perhaps promote these uh, matches a little bit more, but all in all, in the effects and the impacts of Universal T20I status has been superb and certainly one of the highlights. Um, have a great 2020, everybody. Dougal Bedingfield here from Japan Cricket. Uh, Japan's highlight for 2019 was most definitely qualifying for the uh, Under-19 World Cup for the first time ever. Uh, After a long absence uh, from not playing any Under-19 cricket of any form, uh, we were able to host the East Asia Pacific qualifiers in Sano, and we were lucky enough to finish unbeaten. Uh, We're currently in uh, Brisbane with the Under-19 squad, uh, training and preparing for the uh, World Cup in South Africa next month. And uh, hoping all the uh, emerging cricket fans can follow us and uh, cheer us on next month. How's it going? This is Jay Donsagani. You can follow me on Twitter at jcricketdude. My favorite emerging cricket moments of the year. um, I'll pick two. Singapore's quartet of upsets over Nepal, Canada, Zimbabwe, and Scotland in the space of just 14 weeks. And as a Hong Konger, it breaks my heart to say this, but you have to give credit where credit is due. Jatinder Singh's barrage of switch hits and reverse sweeps 
on his way to 67 not out against Hong Kong in a winner-goes-to-the-World-Cup game at the qualifiers in Dubai. Sorry, Tim, but happy holidays, everyone. Hi, everyone. My name is Dennis Masari. I'm the communications manager for Cricket Uganda. Uh, 2019 wasn't very was a year of big of, of mixed emotions uh, for cricket uh, in Uganda. Uh, we started off with the under-19s who went to Namibia, but they didn't do well. Uh, they were bridesmaids as uh, Nigeria uh, qualified for the under-19 World Cup. Shocking result, uh, given that uh, Uganda and Namibia were the favorites, but Nigeria um, uh, riding their luck all the way and winning all their uh, their games and qualifying for the World Cup, which will be early next month uh, in South Africa, and wish them all the best. Uh, um, then uh, uh, later in the year, our ladies also defending champions on the continent went to Zimbabwe to try and qualify for the global qualifiers. Uh, didn't go well as well, uh, finishing third in that tournament. But after a bizarre tournament uh, where... We spent more time at the hotel than on the playing field, but uh, I guess that is for the ICC to work on. But strangely, uh, Namibia, if uh, Uganda had at least uh, been in the final with Zimbabwe, they could have had another shot at qualifying for the tournament because later in the year, uh, the politics ruled Zimbabwe out of the tournament and uh, Namibia, who were runners-up, were able to qualify for that event in Scotland. So now... Uganda not having too much luck uh, at that time. And then fast forward to May this year, uh, where we hosted the Africa T20 qualifiers. Uh, a lot of rain that distracted us, and in the end, ended up uh, uh, washing out uh, 25% of the tournament. Even if we were able to get 70, 75% of the tournament done, uh, 25% of it was washed out. And this meant that... Uh, some teams didn't get to play their games, and uh, others uh, were fortunate enough. And in this case, I'm mentioning Nigeria, who were able to finish ahead of the host Uganda in third place. And still, because of the politics in Zimbabwe, they were able to earn that other African slot and go to Dubai and and, uh, and compete at uh, at uh, the global qualifier with other nations. So up until then, there was very little fortune for cricket. <laughs> For Uganda cricket, uh, but the redemption for our team for 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 cricket in Uganda, I think, came in Oman, where the cricket cranes surprised everyone by winning all their five group games, and uh, and uh, ending the tournament on top of the table after round one of the world, uh, the World Challenge League, League B, and with the second round going to be hosted in Kampala, you feel that uh, the win is with Uganda. Uh, as they try to progress to the next round of qualifiers for the 2023 World Cup. So a big year coming up ahead in 2020. We look forward to the first uh, the first, uh, the first, first of its kind, Africa T20 tournament in Nairobi in early March. Then uh, we, host, uh, we host the second round of the World Challenge League in Kampala in July. And then also there's the T20 qualifiers later in the year in uh, in, uh, in in Rwanda, so a big year for cricket, and we hope uh, that uh, we've been we've had very very bad weather this year with a lot of rain, but we hope we can have enough sun next year to be able to enjoy cricket uh, uh, locally. That's it from me, and uh, happy new year to everyone and to all the guys who follow Imagine Cricket. 
people have listened to the podcast and downloaded it. Keep following us and keep keep supporting Associate Cricket. Hey everyone, Abhay Sakar here. I'm from the Golden State of California, and uh, my favorite highlights of this year would have to be uh, the USA hosting Namibia and Papua New Guinea in Florida. I think it was just a great experience watching and covering that for Emerging Cricket, and I'm looking forward to a great 2020. Cheers, guys. A huge thank you to our dozens of contributors here at Emerging Cricket who have helped out over the course of 2019. And a huge thank you to all of you listening to the podcast today, reading our articles and uh, enjoying our work. Uh, We can't do any of this without all of you as well. So a massive thank you and here's to an excellent 2020 in the Emerging Games. Keep up with news and events from Cricket's New World. Make sure to follow emergingcricket.com and follow Emerging Cricket on all your social media platforms. But for now, from myself, Daniel Beswick, and behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner, and Tasneem Samar Khan, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the cricketing world.